For decades, the history of the DC Universe has been marked by its crisis-level events, status quo-altering storylines that have rewritten continuity while also providing a meta-commentary on DC Comics publishing itself, and all under a signature red glow. This is Red Skies, a 13-part podcast epic mining these events and the Superman of it all. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. This is Red Skies Chapter 7, and joining me to discuss the weekly series 52 is returning guest Scott Honig. Welcome back. Thank you so much. I've been listening to every episode in the event so far. I've been loving it. I'm so excited to be uh, one part of it. Thank you for having me back. Another part of it. No, I appreciate that so much. And most of these episodes we record at least a couple weeks in advance, but we're actually recording this just a few days before it'll go up. One of the nice things about that is it gives me an opportunity to sort of check in because the previous episodes have been out and I've been getting feedback and it's been wonderful. And I really just want to thank everyone who has been coming along on this ride with us. I've been having a lot of fun. I truly can't believe we're already now at the halfway point. To me, it feels like it's been going by quickly. Hopefully it feels that way for the audience. But I've heard such such lovely feedback from folks on the episodes that we've done so far. So uh, I really do. I, I thank all of them and I, and I thank you as well, Scott. Well, it's the praise is well deserved because the way that you have planned these and the way that you execute them and the, the guests you choose for each one make a huge difference in, in the enjoyability of, of the event. So I've been having a blast listening to it. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Even my parents listen to the episodes that I'm on and they haven't read any of this stuff. I mean, they don't know really anything and they got such a kick out of it too. So if you can, if you can uh, entertain them, then you're doing something right. That's high praise. I really, I really appreciate that. Well, it's funny because I was thinking about this in particular with respect to what we're going to discuss now. It's always a balancing act in terms of how much plot summary we give because I never want it to be all plot recap, right? Because then we're not really engaging with the material and, and it wouldn't be interesting for me. But at the same time, I do recognize that a lot of times we're talking, about, regardless of what we're talking about, it's a mix as far as what the audience has experienced. So a lot of times we're talking about stuff that people either haven't read at all or maybe they haven't read in a long time. So I want to make sure that we're giving enough context and all of that. So hopefully we've been striking a good balance with that. And I bring it up particularly with 52 because this was a year-long 52-issue series, and I just want to say at the outset of this, we're not here to give an issue-by-issue issue breakdown of every story beat and everything that happened over this year-long series. Of course, we'll give the broad strokes, and we'll get specific where appropriate, where it will aid our conversation. But again, this is not meant to be a comprehensive <laughs> plot summary of 52. Our episodes are long enough as it is, and we'll be here forever if we do that. <laughs> Yeah, I think it would be virtually impossible to approach it that way. Um, you know, I know you and and your guest were talking in the in, uh, Infinite Crisis episode about how impressed you all were about, you know, how, how well DC planned and executed that event. And 52 being the sort of event that came out of Infinite Crisis and bridged the gap to what's coming next, um, I thought continued that, that planning really, really well. It's uh, you can see a lot of the threads from even before Infinite Crisis now to after Infinite Crisis. Um, and so 
the way that it's constructed, the way it's put together, and just the sheer fact that they put out a weekly comic without missing a single week that entire year is so incredibly uh, impressive. But yes, the structure of it is that each issue essentially focuses on a number of different characters and a number of different plot lines for a few pages each written by different writers. And so it would be, it would be, I think foolish to to try to go, you know, issue by issue or even a group of issues at a time. But, but the characters each have their own through line and their own uh, arc to tackle. Well said when you were on for our countdown to infinite crisis episode, I said on air that if I were smart, I would get a head start on my 52 reading and not leave it for the last minute and not try to cram it all in. But, but of course that's what ended up happening. And I, I read the entirety of 52 over the past three days. And I got to tell you, man, Oh, was it fun? Oh, I really enjoyed yeah. it. I really, really enjoyed it. I can't wait to compare notes real quick. little bit of business here. So this is chapter seven of red skies. Next week is labor day. Originally we were just going to take a break that week, but I decided that we will have a little interlude. So Red Skies will take a pause for the week of Labor Day. But on Tuesday, September 5th, we will have a brand new episode and our buddy V. Ken Marion will be back and he and I will be talking about season one of My Adventures with Superman, the new animated series that we all love. So we will have a new episode next week. It won't be Red Skies, but we'll have this fun little interlude. And then the week after that, Red Skies will resume and we'll get into Final Crisis and the second half, the second leg of our journey through all of these crisis level events. So I just wanted to let everyone know. I'll be here. I'll be here for it. Right on. Why, thank you. So the weekly series 52. So this, as you had said, was designed to bridge that year long gap in the DC universe between Infinite Crisis and the one year later publishing initiative. So right after Infinite Crisis, all of the ongoing books had that one year later circle (laughs) branding on all of their books, and all of the books jumped ahead one year. And then you had this weekly series that was filling in the gaps of what happened over that year in the DC universe. And in terms of the the behind the scenes piece, piece of all of this, to your point, the way that this was constructed and organized and executed was really, really impressive. I very much enjoyed the substance of the book, but at the same time, I also can't get over how they were able to pull this together and get all of those issues out and get them out on time. So it was a writer's room approach on the writing side. So we had a quartet of really top, top name writers here. We had Grant Morrison, Mark Wade, Jeff Johns, and Greg Rucka. So they were the four writers. And then you had Keith Giffen doing breakdowns for all of the issues on the art side. And then a whole stable of pencilers who came through and actually penciled the issues. There's a bunch of them. I think the most frequent names that we saw were Joe Bennett, Eddie Barrows, Chris Batista, and Pat Olief, if I'm saying that right. Mm -hmm. And of course, we cannot leave out the cover artist, J.G. Jones. Those covers, man, absolutely gorgeous. Stunning. I mean, that's a way to sell the book right there. Just, you know, that's what you're seeing on the shelf. I dare you not to pick it up. They're absolutely gorgeous. And actually, one of the regrets I have in reading it in the four trades, because uh, it was all compiled in four <laughs> trades, is the covers don't appear in, uh, like, ahead of each issue. 
they appear as sort of a gallery in the back and a lot of them are shrunk down so they can fit maybe four or five on a page. So you can kind of see it, but it's, you know, it's small. And I think that art deserves, you know, the full size treatment, but you know, what are you going to do? I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to complain about that. So uh, this has been, (laughs) this has been collected a few different ways. So like you said, there was the set of four, soft covers that each collected 13 issues. Then later they did a two volume set. So they did half and half. Uh, and then there's also an omnibus. Now I've never seen the omnibus, but I have seen the both sets of soft covers and the four volume set to your point, And this drove me nuts. Like you said, relegated those gorgeous covers to a gallery in the back. Now that in and of itself I, I, a, I don't like because, again, you want to see it before the issue and it sets the stage mm-hmm. for what you're going to read. But even more than that, again, they use this gallery format when it's like four per page. So you are not getting the full majesty of the art here. What I will say, though, for that four volume set, after every single issue, they have commentary from the creators. And that was great. Just a page, a page or two. And you get to see some script ex- excerpts and some of the breakdowns. Really cool. The two volume set corrected the first misstep where they actually have the covers full size before each issue. Perfect. But they did not include all of that commentary material. So I'm like, guys, like you guys are killing me here. It's like, like, we can't have it all. We can only have some. We can't have it all. Honestly though, I, I, I think at this stage I'd rather have the commentary because I found it really interesting to hear some of the behind the scenes stories of which writer wrote which characters or scenes. Um, some some of the time you saw some of the breakdown art or some of the pencil art, even some of the the cover process from JG Jones, uh, as you said, script pages. So I'm a sucker for that. I love that sort of DVD extras stuff like that. And and the covers for as gorgeous as they are and not particularly well displayed in the trades. I mean, I can always find a cover if I want to online or something like that, if I want to look. Well said. So we'll still, we'll give our overview of the main characters and plot lines and all of that, but I always tend to neglect the art and we talk about it at the end usually. So let's just start here. So we talked about the covers and I'm happy to hear anything else you want to say about the covers. They really were absolutely gorgeous. But as far as the interiors go, what I kept thinking about as I was reading was from a Again, from a technical logistical standpoint, this makes all the sense in the world. You have one artist, Keith Giffen, who is drawing breakdowns for every issue. So that is saving the eventual penciler a significant amount of time. And it's maintaining that consistent visual look throughout. Uh, But then the flip side of that, I'm wondering for the pencilers who came on board, is, is it creatively stifling if you're handed breakdowns, right? I mean, because that's such a big part of the storytelling process, right? Is d- figuring out, okay, how you're going to, to bring this script to life. And if you're already given that part, again, I think it was such a time crunch. That that's the only way that I think it made sense to do it. But that's kind of what I was, the two sides of that I was thinking as I was reading. Yeah, I'd be curious to get, uh, you know, a professional artist's take on this you know maybe Ken would be a, a good person to ask about i did but... i did text him about that. oh you did oh good did he have a a thought on it he sort of echoed you know what what i, what I had said as far as you know it yeah. saves time but that yes you it does you know it does there's that creative aspect that has been sort of taken care of for you so you know i guess it's a matter of preference for each artist i guess as far as what they prefer yeah because i would think if you're on a monthly title and you've got the 30 days to put together the book, I think it would be 
I, could be insulting to an artist to not let them decide how the page is going to be laid out. But if you're if you're working on a weekly schedule and you're an artist who's doing, you know, an issue every other week. I mean, Joe Bennett, Chris Batista, these guys were were doing, you know, the lion's share of these issues, particularly in the beginning. And um, and I think that it, it probably was a huge boon to them. But even so, I, I think your your other point is is well taken in that because you have so many different artists and they each have their own styles, you do want the series to feel unified. You don't want it to feel like there are so many hands at play, even though there are. And I think among the four writers, that was really, really well done. I mean, there were once, once you get into the the book, you kind of get a sense of which writer is writing, which characters, but it doesn't feel jarring scene to scene. Um, and issue to issue, despite who's penciling it, it also doesn't feel like a, a huge departure uh, stylistically when a new artist is coming on and then they return to another artist and then there's a brand new one. Even the, the couple of issues toward the end where multiple artists, multiple, I should say multiple pencilers um, contributed to a single issue, it, I wasn't I wasn't bent out of shape by it. I mean, they managed to keep it so that each artist was kind of focusing also on their own character or storyline. So it just felt really natural and organic. And, uh, you know, I- I'm sure there were rushes and I'm sure there were moments of panic, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way on the reading end of it. It really feels like a well-planned, um, well-oiled machine that, that cranked these out for a year. No, absolutely. It's, and it's funny too, we were talking about that commentary in the trades, they were very candid, the creators in those, <laughs> in that back matter material <laughs> where, you know, they had their fair share of disagreements and there were mistakes that they didn't catch until things went to print. The menorah in Kate Kane's apartment originally was right, missing right. a candle. I think they fixed it for the, for the collected edition. But yeah, I mean, this was, such, I think, such a mad dash. Again, the fact that this happened at all and it happened on time is amazing. I, I, I don't know how to say this without making it sound like a like an insult or, or a backhanded compliment. But I think maybe one of the reasons I, I, for myself at least, was more forgiving, right, of having all of these different pencilers and, and all of that is that, I don't know, you know, we talk a lot about, uh, especially when it comes to delays and making sure you have that consistency, you know, give the artist enough lead time so that one artist can draw an entire arc and you have that that graphic novel on your shelf and, and it's, it's a cohesive visual look. And of course, I, I do still generally stand by that for most stories, but I feel like the nature of this piece, right, was such that, I don't want to say I had lower expectations, but it was just, again, I don't I don't know the right word for it, and because I, I don't want to, there was a t- obviously a ton of creativity and, and, and so much thought that went into all of this, so I don't want to paint it as just this sort of mechanical exercise, but at the same time, again, there's just the production reality of all of this, and the fact that they were knocking these out one a week, I think it just sort of changes Again, the like the scale that it's graded on, in, in a sense, at least with respect to that. So that wasn't anything that that bumped me. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think hearing you say that, it makes me think that part of the reason for that could have also been the characters they chose to focus on in, in the book, because you're not dealing with your DCA listers. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, most famously, are out of commission for a year. Um, there's a little, you know, a, a cameo by a Green Lantern here or there, a flash. Of, but for the most part, we're dealing with 
B and C and even sometimes D list DC characters. And so I think the stakes were lower in that you, I think the writers had more freedom with what they could do with those characters. The audience isn't as bent out of shape. You know, we hear people say like, well, that's not my Superman or my Batman would never do that. I don't think too many people are thinking the same thing about, uh, you know, Booster Gold or Renee Montoya or Adam Strange when it comes to those kinds of things, just because they don't have the same type of fan base. I'm sure there are diehard fans of, of some of those, but uh, you know, here I, I feel like they had a lot more leeway to do what they want to make major changes, to change the status quo of some of these characters in interesting ways without the audience, you know, becoming you know angry or upset. Um, and the added bonus too, is that I don't know that any of these characters could really sustain a book on their own. So it made a lot of sense to combine them in this, what is essentially an anthology story, although it's not presented that way. It's a, it's an anthology. Um, and, and to have each character just kind of have a showcase every couple of issues and then move to the background for a little while and then come back. And I think that, those choices made it so that, yeah, our expectations were lower, but it also made it such a satisfying read because the book, I think, exceeds expectations. Absolutely. So I I did not read the subsequent weekly series. There was Countdown to Final Crisis, and then later on there was Trinity. I've not read mm-hmm. those, so I can't speak from firsthand experience. What I've read of them and sort of the reactions that I've, I've heard about them, I don't think any other weekly attempt that DC has done has matched the quality of this. So there's really something to be said for it. You've taken us into the story territory, so we'll get into that. The last thing I just want to say on the art side is, again, I think those Giffen breakdowns go a long way towards keeping everything consistent. I, I Again, I use the the analogy of a writer's room, right? Just like a TV show for, for the, the scripting of this. And we'll get into that even more when you talk about, again, these four very different writers, especially, <laughs> especially when you consider like, a Greg Rucka versus a Grant Morrison. I feel like Johns and Wade <laughs> kind of like are in between and there's a little more overlap, but like Rucka and yeah. Morrison, but it makes for such a fascinating blend. But on the art side, I, you know, one thing that you hear a lot when people are talking about TV shows is that with the exception of a show's pilot, where the look of the show is being established for the first time, after that point, anytime a, a, a guest director is coming in, right? There's only really so much they can do. Like they're not being brought in to change the visual style of the show. They're there to make sure it looks like all of the other episodes. Uh, here, I kind of likened Keith Giff and, and the crew is always there. Like the crew is always the same. The director comes in and out. Right. I kind of likened in my head, uh, Keith Giffen to like the director of photography, right? Like he's the, the one yes. who's there all the time. And then the pencers are coming in like as the guest directors, right? And they're they're bringing their style to it. But again, it's all still fitting within a certain mold. And I felt like the artists they chose, I had my favorites. Uh, Joe Bennett was far and away my favorite. I, and he started and ended it. And I, I thought that I'm a big fan of his. He did a, he, he drew a very underrated run of Hawkman. After, yes, he did. After Jeff Johns and Rags Morales left, there was Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti as the writing team. And Joe Bennett drew, it was, it was really, really good stuff before Infinite Crisis. Mm-hmm. So I was a big fan of him. But I felt like for the most part, the artists who they were bringing on, it, it felt cohesive there were with a couple of exceptions Derek robertson drew a couple of issues and you know I, like i like the art in and of itself but those were issues where it just felt like well like this one really looks like this one really looks different than the others and even phil jimenez did a little bit as well yeah. I think he did that reign yeah, of the did. superman 
issue, which again was great in and of itself. But that was another instance where I felt like, okay, this, this looks a little, di- but that's fine. But again, there were just a couple of times where I was like, okay, this doesn't really like which one of these is not like the other ones, but that's okay. No, I, I agree. Joe Bennett has long been a, a favorite artist of mine. Um, and if you haven't checked out his um, fairly recent immortal Hulk run with, uh, with Al Ewing, it just, it's phenomenal. And his art levels up tremendously for my, for my taste. Uh, Chris Batista to me was a standout. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020. Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Oh yeah, Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join All Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow All Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw, yeah. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. As the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources, to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. So last time, right, we had an epic conversation about Infinite Crisis and everything that that had been going on across all corners of the DC universe. And now we're into this 52 territory filling in the missing year. And to your point, and as the tagline goes, it's a year without Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman, but it's not a year without heroes, right? So now this is in this missing year, who's going to step up? Whose stories are we going to follow? And yes, it is very much an ensemble piece. And I agree with you totally Although, well, it's funny. I, mean, I was going to say, yeah, a lot of these characters can't sustain their own projects, but they did then after this, like 52, but would, would that have been the case without 52, right? So 52 really launched a lot. And that was actually one of the other things. We could save this for the end, but while we're here now, I had forgotten or was just never totally aware of how much spun out of this. So Greg Rucka wrote a crime Bible miniseries featuring Renee Montoya. Later, he would write the Final Crisis Revelations miniseries that partnered brought the old partners back together, Renee Montoya as the question and uh, Christmas Allen at now as the specter. There was a countdown to adventure miniseries that came out of this that mm-hmm. continued along with Starfire, Adam Strange and Animal Man. Uh, there was an Infinity Inc. series that lasted a year mm-hmm. with Steel and, and Natasha. Uh, there was the new Booster Gold series that Jeff Johns and Jan- Dan Jurgens were doing. I know there's, there's more that I'm forgetting and I'll rattle off later, but there was so much <laughs> that came out of this. But, Going back to the original point, at least prior to this, 
uh, yeah, not characters that you would necessarily expect to see kind of as, as the headliners, but together, uh, I think it worked really nicely. And what I thought was cool was how the stories intersected. A lot of the characters, not all of them, but a, a lot of the characters crossed paths at various points, but at the same time, and this, I appreciated this, it wasn't as if it was all building to a finale where like all of these characters we've been following came together, right? I think you would yeah. kind of expect that. And that's not what they did. Certain major plot lines wrapped up a few issues before others. Uh, so it, it just, it felt very organic and very lived in and I, and I appreciated it. And the other thing, kind of big picture that I wanted to say, and I don't want to forget this because as I was reading it and having a very good time, I kept saying to myself, like, what is it about this that I'm really liking so much? Yeah, yeah. And part of it is, I was a huge fan of 24, the Kiefer Sutherland TV series. As was I. And so, yeah, I remember that. That ran throughout my high school and college years. So boy, was I in just the right spot for that. <laughs> and I remember I missed the boat on the first season because it aired opposite Smallville. But obviously I, I wasn't going to not watch Smallville. But I remember this was early days of TV on DVD. And I remember getting the DVD set of season one that summer and binging it and just having the absolute <laughs> best time. So the whole real time aspect is something that uh, I do very much enjoy. And I think something about that spoke to me, but then beyond that, I was thinking about it. And I feel like when we're looking at DC stories generally in the regular ongoing books, yes, there are occasionally team ups and yes, there are team up books, but it's usually not until these big crisis level events that we're talking about where everybody comes together and you really get the full scope of the DC universe, but there's always so much going on and the stakes mm -hmm. are so high and it's busy and there's some fun to be had with that, no doubt. But what I found very refreshing about this was this felt more like the DCU a day in the life, right? Mm -hmm. And you got to see all of these characters kind of swirling around and coming and going and crossing paths. Yes, there was... There was business to be done, but the stakes weren't, you know, oh, until we get to the end, <laughs> the stakes were, you know, <laughs> world ending. So it just felt like you could breathe a little bit more, but also have those opportunities to see how everything intersects. And I think that really stood out. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking back now to some of the conversations we've had in the past about other books, and you and I seem to be on the same page generally about uh, how much a story should focus on plot versus how much it should focus on character. And I think you and I both are, you know, we, yes, we want things to happen, but we tend to like stories better when the characters are highlighted, when we feel like we're learning something about a character we know really well that we didn't know before, or we're seeing them go through something that they haven't gone through before and seeing them react to it. And I think that's a lot of what we get here is the plot is almost secondary. This is really about a lot of characters on self journeys of self discovery or, um, you know, just sort of on, on their path to achieving something that we really haven't seen before. And, and how do they deal with the obstacles in their way? How do they deal with the setbacks and how do they deal with the victories? And, you know, some of them end up in a better place by the end. Some of them do not. Um, and so I, I think I responded really well to this because they never lost sight of the character bits and they so easily could have, and that makes it even more 
impressive that they managed to do that. I mean, again, coming out of a major line wide event, like infinite crisis that let's face it, there are, there are character moments in that too, but by nature, by definition of being a major event, it has to, the plot has to be big. The stakes have to be universe spanning or multiverse spanning. And so sometimes you lose the bits of character that you just don't have the time or the room for here. That wasn't the case. So it's, it's really refreshing. I thought to come out of the big event and into this and have to have it take its time to have it, you know, spend a couple of pages each issue that are sometimes quiet. You know, there are some issues where, you know, nothing really happens and yet you're so compelled to keep going. So I really, I, like you, I just, I had a blast with this. I didn't remember a ton from the first time I read it as it came out. Reading a weekly series was sort of baffling, I think, at the time. Like, I couldn't I couldn't really place things. I couldn't remember. But getting to read it over the course of a couple of weeks was really satisfying. So I wanted to touch on that because I know I've I've mentioned this off mic, but I'm pretty sure on the show as well. So we, you know, the timing of this was not great when this was first coming out because I had, I I had, I did say this on the show when you were on before I had just made the decision, right. Coming out of infinite crisis to now wait for the trade on everything. So again, terrible timing, right. As DC starting this (laughs) weekly series. And I remember seeing it at the comic shop and I probably at least skimmed through the early issues, if nothing else, but the intention was always to wait for the trade. But for whatever reason, as I did own the trades at a certain point, I, I since sold them and I, I read them digitally now. But at some point I did attempt to sit down and read this. And for whatever reason, it, it, I just didn't connect with it. And so hmm. part of me wondered, was this not not conducive to uh, sort of, uh, you know, reading it in that form, binging it? as it were. Is this something that, again, it was clearly, it originally came out weekly and that's how it was meant to be read. And, and maybe it just doesn't have the same effect if you're reading them back to back to back. So I I didn't know. And so that's why coming into my prep for this episode, I was a little worried because again, I had tried once before, but I don't know, maybe I just wasn't in the right headspace at that time. We're going back years now because I just had such a great experience and it, as a binge, it worked great. And one of the things that was cool was that just in terms of the pacing, it really moved. Now, the the main story in each of these issues was 20 pages, not the typical, at right. the time, 22, because you had the backups, which I, I did not read, and those were not in the collected editions. But, no. uh, you know, so you had a couple less pages, so that helped it go a little faster. I also noticed, and this kind of goes back to the production and the, and the art side, we talked, with, I talked about, uh, for example, the crisis on infinite Earths and how it dense those dense those pages were how many panels <laughs> and look when we get to doomsday clock in a few episodes that a la watchmen pretty strictly utilized that nine panel per page grid and that as well felt pretty dense here they definitely eased up and you saw not exclusively they definitely varied the the page layouts but i feel like in a lot of instances you had four panels per page. I feel like that was a pretty common one. And so, you know, it, it allowed the story to breathe, but also to move a little faster. And again, I have to imagine that in terms of the writing and the art, I don't want to say cut corners, but it's like any opportunity you have to just sort of knock this out and keep going. 
I'm sure was a welcome one. So, you know, that's one aspect that I think helped it move. And then because you had all of these characters and storylines, and I'll give a quick rundown in a second here, mm-hmm. in case anyone hasn't read this and like, what the hell is this story about? I'll, we'll break it down. <laughs> but uh, what was cool was that if there was something that you weren't really feeling, right? Because we're, we're, you know, we're talking a good half a dozen major storylines here. And if there were one or two that maybe weren't lighting your fire, you only had to spend maybe a few pages on it in a given issue. And then you were on to something else. For me, I'll be honest, the outer space adventure, I didn't dislike, but it was probably my least favorite of the ones that we were following. And so when we were in outer space, I was like, okay, like that's fine. But again, only like a few pages and then we were back into something else. And that it really moved. It really moved. I Again, 52 issues. I didn't know if this was going to be a slog and it wasn't, it was a really, it was a really good experience. I wanted to ask you, cause you read this as it was first coming out and now you read, so you read it weekly and now you read it again. Did it yeah. read better one way or the other? Well, it read better now for a couple of reasons. One, I think because I was reading it in trade and I was moving from one issue right into the next. And, you know, I had a better sense of each character's full arc because you have to remember like, you know, you start with a character where they are just following Infinite Crisis, and you end with that character a year later, a year later. And so their their arc, as you, as you talked about it, you know, sort of happening in real time, you know, the character is in a very different place by the time they finish. And it's hard to remember back a year to go, wait, where did they start again? Or what were all those beats along the way? It's it's a little bit hard to keep it all straight in, in my head, but you know, having read the four trades within the last, I think, three weeks or so, um, I didn't run into that the way that I did back then. Um, I also think, and you've spoken about this in other episodes in this event, that having more context going into 52 really, really helps, right? I mean, you know, you could certainly read this series in a bubble, I don't know that that's a smart idea, um, but when you read it, you know, we read like the four miniseries leading up to Infinite Crisis. I remember Infinite Crisis very well because we did a book club episode on it a few years ago. I listened to your episode on it. And so I'm going into 52 with that background feeling like these these are the, the movements and the pushes through the DC universe as a whole. And so 52 slots right in. So given that context, it works even better. And of course, I'm also now in a place in my life where I've read so much more of DC's comics that I have a much better sense of their history, these particular characters place in that history. And so getting to catch up with some of these characters now is a much more fulfilling experience. I also know what has happened to them since in the last 20 years, almost 20 years since this series came out. So again, I'm able to really kind of slot it right in um, to the big picture, which I think helps. 20 years. I know. It was like 2005 and six, right? Yeah. Or yeah. Or 2006 and seven. Yeah. But I know it's sort of coming up on 20 years, not quite 20 years. I know it's crazy how the, how the time flies, but no, it's, it's great to get your, your take on that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, was also really interesting reading this was just seeing all of these 
connection points like you and I did an episode of another podcast, my comic shop book club a couple of years ago. Now we looked at Greg Rucka's detective comics run where he introduced the characters whisper, dare and Abbott. And they play a big role here as part of intergang. So, and I mean, of course the written name on Toya of it all. Uh, And then honestly, even connection points to things that have come since, like we had a whole Batwoman television show. I, I watched very little of it, but still a lot of the things that were introduced here and that Rucka would continue in the detective comics run that he did with J.H. Williams. You know, we saw a lot of that play out on screen. I also couldn't help but think when we got to the Black Adam of it all, of the Black Adam movie. And I got to tell you, you know, a very quick tangent. And for yeah. anyone who, uh, if you haven't listened to our Patreon episode on the Black Adam movie, check it out. We went through the whole movie, so I, I won't I won't take us too far afield here. But reading the Black Adam story that unfolds here, you know, at the time with the movie the and the plans at the time, the hierarchy of power was going to change and all of that. Was I chomping at the bit for a DC cinematic universe built around Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam? No, not necessarily. That probably wasn't number one on my list. But at least he was trying to do something. I will forever give him that. The guy was trying to do something. (laughs) Uh, But reading this story, it's like, man, there really is a lot of potential with Black Adam. And even if maybe he didn't need to be the centerpiece of the of the DC movie world, it, it, it to me, it is regrettable that what they were trying to build was completely jettisoned now because I read this and it's like, man, there are a lot of ways that you, you could go with this character. But again, that's all to say that just as I'm reading this, I'm seeing these connection points, the stories that had come before from this era of comics that I really loved, but then also these connection points to adaptations in particular that have come since. So I really like that. And, you know, to your point about reading it in, in context, yes, that definitely helps. Although, see, I don't know. I, I want to say this, but at the same time, I'm reading it in the midst of all of this. So I think my perspective is skewed because in my mind, I'm like, I feel like this stands up on its own as much as yes, it sets up a lot. And yes, it's building off of what came before, but I feel like it works on its own. But again, it's it's hard for me to say, cause that's not how I read yeah. it. But I, w- I will say for our audience, if you haven't read 52, if you haven't read it in a while, but if you have been following our event, I think if you've listened to our conversations on identity crisis, the countdown stuff, infinite crisis in particular, I think you you could dive into 52. And I really would, I, I don't do this a lot, right? Where I don't want to, I don't want to mm-hmm. <laughs> like, guys, you have to read this. But <laughs> if you're at all curious, like give it a read. This was a very, is a really good read. I agree. I agree. I, I, I recommend it wholeheartedly. Um, it's, it's not, it's not a go-to. It's not something I would give to a new comics reader, but for someone who wants a really complex story, well put together, that captures sort of a moment. I mean, you know, it really is a year in the life. Um, then I, you know, I couldn't recommend it high enough. It's just, it is really enjoyable, really enjoyable. Like it, you, I found myself enjoying it more than I thought I would returning to. It. Yeah. Again, I wouldn't, I, I don't, I don't want to belabor the point, but I would not have been <laughs> able to read this in three days. If, if I didn't like it. And Ooh. again, not to knock those other weekly attempts, right? Because I know, I think Paul Dini was the head writer on Countdown to Final Crisis and Kurt Busiek did mm-hmm. the Trinity series. Like, these are great, talented people. But at the same time, when you look at the talent involved here, and I, I think, again, when we try to account for like, how are they able to do this and why does it work as well as it does? You know, I, and it's funny too, in the in the commentary, they do talk about how 
in a lot of instances, the person who you suspect wrote something did write it. But then there are other times yeah. where you, you would be surprised. And that was really interesting. Uh, but yeah, that's the other, that's the other fun bit of it too. Like, as, of course, as you're reading a lot of the Renee Montoya stuff, you assume, okay, Greg Rucka is, is behind that. Uh, when you get to the mad scientists on Oolong Island, it's like, this screams Grant Morrison. <laughs> <Just> screams <laughs> Grant Morrison. Yes, it does. But it was, but having all of them together, like I said, I think it was just a great blend because I think they balanced yeah. each other out nicely. And, and again, I think allowed for them to be able to uh, tackle this task. All right, let me give my rundown of what this is about. So yeah. The year after Infinite Crisis, again, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman are off the board. When we left them at the end of Infinite Crisis, they were all stepping back, but on good terms, and they were going to find themselves, right? Bruce was taking Dick and Tim to retrace his steps that he took to originally become Batman, but this time with their company. Superman had been completely depleted of his powers after that final battle under the Red Sun with Superboy Prime and is waiting for his powers to return, and in the meantime is back to his, his reporter beat. And Wonder Woman was off to find herself as well. They didn't, yeah, I mean, when you, <laughs> the journeys of the three of them, I feel like they probably gave the, the, the least bit to Wonder Woman, but in any event, they're off the board. But like the tagline goes, it's not a year, uh, it's not a year without heroes. So in terms of the main, the main characters and stories that we're following here, we have Lex Luthor and his Everyman program where he is giving superpowers to ordinary people, including Natasha, niece of John Henry Irons, and that drives a huge wedge between them. Unsurprisingly, I think we'll probably spend a fair bit of time on the Steel and Luther and Metropolis of it all, especially here on Digging for Kryptonite. And then, of course, we have Rene Montoya and the question, Vic Sage, as they are trying to stop Intergang from infiltrating Gotham City. And it's not just what we've come to think of as Intergang. It's an Intergang that subscribes to this religion of crime, and they adhere to the word of the crime Bible. So Intergang now has kind of taken on this whole other, this whole other meaning and objective. And if there's Plot-wise, right, I think if there's one one thread that kind of weaves through a lot of this, it is Intergang because they'll obviously play a role in the in the Black Adam piece of this as well and right. the mad scientist aspect of this. So Intergang has its has its hooks in a lot of what, what we read. I had mentioned this a moment ago, but we have Starfire, Adam Strange, and Animal Man stranded in outer space trying to find their way home. They have an interesting run-in with Lobo. Shout out to our buddy, <laughs> Justin DeVoe. When I got to yep, that- yep. When I got to that cover, when I got to that cover of, uh, of Lola, I was like, all right, here we go. Uh, yep. We also spend a good bit of time with Booster Gold, who is trying to trying to make his name in Metropolis in this year without Superman, but unfortunately has to resort to some, uh, you know, less than, you know, uh, less than noble uh, means as far as using his his uh, knowledge of the future, which proves to be a bit suspect. And there's a lot more that unfolds with, with Booster. There are also these mad scientists who have been assembled to, to create the four horsemen for Intergang. Uh, and among the evil mad scientists, we also have Dr. Will Magnus, creator of my favorite, the Metal Men. <laughs> but, you know, if there was ever a time where I enjoyed there's not much metal, man. It's mostly Will Magnus. I was I was on board with this. I was on board with this more than more than you would probably expect from me. <laughs> it was just the right amount of metal, man. Just the right amount of metal, man. 
Black Adam, who builds a family with his wife, Isis, and and brother-in-law, Osiris, and really goes on a journey that's quite heartbreaking when you look when you look at the totality of it. And speaking of heartbreaking, we also spend a good bit of time with Ralph Dibney as he is, long story short, investigating whether or not it's possible to reunite with his dearly departed wife, Sue, who, of course, brutally met her end in Identity Crisis. Have I missed anyone? Uh, let's, I mean, there are other characters, but they, they kind of fold into, I think the ones that you've just said. So for instance, like wonder girl, Cassie Sandsmark is, is in here. Um, also investigating how to possibly resurrect Superboy Connor Cantor, her, her boyfriend, but that sort of folds into Ralph Dibney's storyline. That woman, uh, Kate Kane is, is reintroduced here, but that really folds into the Renee Montoya question storyline um there's a new superhero named supernova who starts showing booster gold up and and infuriating him but that really is more part of of his storyline so yeah there's there's you know we get some jsa in here which is kind of cool but they don't have their their own storyline although alan scott is sort of present more than i had remembered um so yeah it's 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 interesting we do get these little bits and pieces of other characters but but i think you hit on all the the main ones and as much as again this is not a story about the trinity they do sprinkle in a few appearances so we see clark kent most of all because again a fair amount Mm -hmm. of the action does take place in metropolis and you see him as a reporter Uh, he has a scene at home with lois where he's talking about how he's still waiting for his powers to come back and not quite worried about it right like he's he knows they'll come back but it's just taking a while and there is i think the the biggest Superman slash Clark moment is the scene of the Daily Planet with Perry, yep. where Perry's really taken him to task because the Daily Star got the drop on on the story on Supernova before Clark was supposed to for the Daily Planet. And Perry is literally handing Clark a notice of termination. He's not been pulling his weight. Whatever, whatever he's been doing in the past, whatever tricks he's had, they're not working now. Uh, of course, unbeknownst to Perry, Clark doesn't have his powers, but Clark responds by, go for it, jumping out the window, because <laughs> that's what you do. He jumps out the window so that Supernova will fly up and save him, and sure enough, that's what happens, and that's what allows him to sort of get a little bit of a, a interview one-on-one time with Supernova so he can break that story, sort of in the way that it's it's what's nice about that is that it's sort of a parallel to the relationship that Lois Lane has always had with Superman in that Superman is always saving her. And then she gets to interview him afterwards. So now Clark is the Lois Lane in this and supernova is the Superman. And and there was a, a nice parallel. I don't know if that was intentional. I assume, I assume it was, but that was kind of cool. Yeah, it was a nice touch. And especially when Lois and Clark are arguing about it after and, I think it's I think it's Clark who says something along the lines of like, do you realize how ironic this is for you to be taking me to task about this? You wrote the book on getting the interview this way. Right, right. What uh, I mean, aside from just seeing Clark, my favorite character, what I liked about this was I guess this filled in a little bit of a gap for me. So we've talked about Up, Up and Away, the first one year later story in the Superman books that was co-written by Jeff Johns and Kurt Busiek. And we covered it when we did our, our big Lex Luthor event. But 
in that story, again, we pick up, it's one year later, Clark is still powerless and he's killing it at work, right? He's been investigating Intergang and he's doing all this stuff and he's really stepped up as a reporter. And, and so much so that if I remember the story correctly, I think again, during the story, he gets his powers back and then kind of starts falling into old habits of, you know, disappearing and this and that. And Perry says something like, what happened to you? Like you were so great over this past year. <laughs> so to see in this story, how he kind of became that version of the reporter, right? He doesn't have the super senses and speed and everything that he was able to rely on in the past, but you see, he's got, he's got the heart of a reporter and he's got the stones to, to take a risk like that. So, you know, that was cool to see. I like that. It felt, <laughs> it felt a little bit much that Perry was going to fire him. <laughs> yeah. You'd think it would be like sort of a warning, like you're not yourself, you know, get it together or I will have to fire you. But yeah, it did seem a little drastic unless, unless he didn't really mean it. And he knew that it would sort of light a fire under Clark, you know, he's maybe had shown him a little tough love and didn't really want to terminate him. I'm, I'm not sure. Cause it sort of reads straightforward that he's firing Clark, but I can't imagine that he would do that. I know. And then there, again, there's not a ton of Clark in this, but you know, by design, yeah. but then there is a moment towards the end. And I know I'm jumping ahead. We'll, we'll go back. But when Lex Luthor at the end of the story is being apprehended, Clark is the one who clocks, that's not really Lex. One of the members of the Everyman Project is a shapeshifter, and Clark has deduced that that's who's actually being carted off. And he leads Steele and the police chief into LexCorp Tower, and they find Lex. Well, what I liked about that, A, is that he was able to suss that out on his own without any of his abilities. I'm back in Smallville mode, my abilities. But also, <laughs> the, and this is minor, but I, this is important. Clark, as he's accounting for how he's able to, to figure this out, he's like, Lex and I, I've known him since we were kids, right? So as we've been going through this Red Skies event, talking about the continuity changes and things like that, what comes out of Infinite Crisis and this new Earth that's formed at the end of Infinite Crisis, specifically as it relates to Superman, number one, it reinstates his past as Superboy, which... To this day, I still still don't really think they have done much with, but it did figure in heavily with the Legion stories that Jeff Johns did right. um, <clears throat> post-Infinite Crisis. He had the uh, the Superman and the Legion of Superheroes story with Gary Frank, and then Final Crisis, Legion of Three Worlds, and that Lightning Strikes right. crossover between JSA and JLA. So there was that kind of trilogy of Legion stories. Other than that, <clears throat> I don't know that they really fully capitalized, but in any event, it, reinst it reinstated... Uh, Clark operating as Superboy in Smallville, which again was one of the major changes coming out of the original crisis, that that massive piece of the character's history was taken away. So there's that. The other thing, and this is where I'm going to choose my words carefully, it solidified the fact that Lex and Clark had a past together in Smallville. And I say that because Birthright, my favorite story, <laughs> had already done that. But as we've talked about, Birthright, and this breaks my heart, but it never really kind of gained a foothold at DC. And it was only really a couple of years between Birthright ending and then Infinite Crisis. But as of Birthright, we had this history of the two of them. Of course, we had that pre-crisis. But now post-crisis, you had this past in Smallville between Clark and Lex. Nothing much really ever came of that. But now after Infinite Crisis, it's like now that's more firmly a part of the character's history. 
Yeah, I'm not sure why Birthright didn't <clears throat> didn't grab hold a little bit tighter than it did. Um, I do know that that I think Jeff Johns and Gary Frank's Superman Secret Origin seems to have kind of taken that hold a little yeah, bit more yeah, than Birthright. I know. I mean, and 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 maybe that speaks. To, I can't. I mean, Jeff Johns was at that point sort of one of the major major architects of the DC universe, and Mark Wade was sort of fading away way from dc at that point so maybe that has something to do with it but i i agree with you i think birthright is a sort of uh you know hid, hidden gem a little bit um because it does some really wonderful things but yeah i agree with you i think here that little nod and i had it in my notes to ask you about it but you brought it up anyway um that 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 little mention about clark and lex having both come from smallville and having known each other since essentially adolescence is a really neat little detail for those who are in the know and, and, and will see it. And I knew you would. Yeah, it was really cool. Oh, another thing while we're talking about Lex. So, and again, we did our whole run of Lex episodes and we talked about how Lex has evolved over the years. But I guess as I was reading this version of Lex, A, I love, man, I loved how, again, this is another gap that was, that I filled in reading 52. I loved how Lex was able to pin everything that he had done mm-hmm. as president Luther and beyond on Alexander Luther from the parallel earth. Right. So of course, as we talked about at the end of infinite crisis, uh, Joker and Lex killed Alexander Luther, but now they use his body and this, this whole theory of no, no, no. Like he was running around posing as me. I was trapped in another dimension and he's able to get off on that, which I thought it was, it was very clever. It worked great. Again, that was alluded to in that up, up and away story. But again, I hadn't read where, where it actually happened. So I filled in that gap for myself. Uh, but the, the larger point was, <clears throat> I feel like this was kind of the last hurrah for the post-crisis evil businessman version of Lex. Because I feel like from this point forward, once we get into the one year later material and everything... I feel like it's more of the scientist and scientist slash businessman. I don't want to make it sound like the business aspect is completely discarded. And especially as we get into 52 and beyond, it's really kind of that dual track for him. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, there's still more of the, the mad scientist, more of the outlaw, especially when you get to stories like uh, The Boy of Steel and Adventure Comics with Connor mm-hmm. when he's trying to figure out whose, whose footsteps he's going to follow in between his two fathers. Right. Uh, so again, I feel like you get more of that, <clears throat> that pre-crisis <clears throat> mad scientist outlaw still with the business side in there, right? They kind of blend, blend all of it. But in reading this and seeing him back at LexCorp tower and pioneering this every man project and <clears throat> relying on the scientists around him, not necessarily splicing right. genes himself. Right. It just kind of felt like, oh, like, again, this is the Lex I grew up with. This is the post-crisis John Byrne Lex. And again, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, he's completely reversed after this, but it just sort of felt like this was the last the last hurrah before the shift. Well, it was an evolution of the character because, you know, you and I spoke about the, the President Lex era and we sort of, you know, concluded then that that was sort of the the last step up the ladder from the businessman right and and we watched we watched it unfold over the last couple of years in real life as Donald Trump the businessman right sort of climbed up that ladder and became the president and and, it, and that made sense so you had a lex who was reflecting 
you know, first in the eighties with John Byrne and then through the nineties and the early two thousands, that, that sort of focus on, on sort of wall street business minded guy, but it makes sense that he evolves to this point because at this point in the 21st century, we started to see moguls who made their fortunes through science and technology. So your Bill Gates, your Steve Jobs, your Elon Musk, right? That, that's essentially who Lex Luthor is evolving into. Evil version of them, but but you know that makes a lot of sense given where we are today. You know, imagine if you know uh, you know one of the names I just mentioned sort of had it out for humanity or had a, an axe to grind, a grudge. What they could do with the money and resources and 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 intelligence that they have is what Lex Luthor is doing here. You know, giving developing the technology to give superpowers to ordinary people, right. To, to bring your downtrodden up and make them feel like they are as good as, if not better than the superheroes who got their powers naturally and are sort of running around, uh, you know, in, in spandex, but the real insidious part of it. And, and my favorite, um, sort of turn in that storyline is that we also learn that once he gives the powers to somebody, he has the ability to turn them off at will. And so he creates a dependence on him. He creates, you know, loyalty because you don't want to cross him if you know he can turn it off. And uh, some of the, the members of infinity Inc become more loyal to him. Some of them, start trying to break away. Like we see Natasha starting to rebel against him. It's an absolutely fascinating turn for that, for that storyline to, to, you know, you mentioned the reign of the Superman spelled R A I N this time where superheroes are falling, literally falling out of the sky to their deaths. Um, and it's, it's disturbing. It's, it's really just, I re- I think I read in one of the commentaries that they almost didn't do it because some people felt like maybe it was in poor taste to have people falling out of the sky, but they ultimately went with it. And I think it's really impactful. It is disturbing, but in all the the right ways. So I don't, I don't know if you felt the same. Yeah, it is. It is gruesome, but it very much shows what Lex is capable of. So I I think it was, it was fitting to include. Yeah. I think it was, and I think it was the title in particular that they were, I think sort of on on the fence about, but yeah, I mean, the other, the other layer to all of this is that primarily they're, they're kids, like they're young people, right? Yeah. So there's that added component to this as well. I mean, it's interesting because in terms of Lex's motivations, it's like initially, I, my initial read was, okay, he wants to populate the city and the world with with all of these other metahumans, right? Now Superman is less special, right? Superman doesn't stand out as much. Superman wouldn't be relied on as much because there are all these other ones. You see throughout the story that he is trying to imbue himself with these abilities and he keeps getting these reports from his doctor that he's not compatible. We find out later that the doctor was faking these, <laughs> was, was faking these reports. But so there's that aspect too, right? Where he also wants this for himself, but yeah, ultimately the, the control. And like you said, this depend <laughs> nurturing dependence. I'm thinking of the dentist system <laughs> from always sunny <laughs> anyway. Uh, <clears throat> but, but yeah, there there's, there's all of that. And, uh, yeah, when he turns off their, their abilities on New Year's Eve and they, they, most of them plummet to their deaths and he does that, if I'm remembering correctly, a lot of this is blurring together, but at this point, Supernova has come on the scene 
uh, and has has carried a lot of public favor. And Lex says something along, along the lines of like, let's see how you handle this, right? Yeah. Uh, so the lengths that he's willing to go to, to, to show up someone who's not under his thumb, you know, speaks volumes. And one of the people who, who falls in with Lex and this, this new group, Infinity Inc. is Natasha. Now, what's interesting at the, I want to get your take, especially as a father and with, with older kids as well, like when now we're used to Superman and Lois, where John Henry is Nats, is Natalie and and he's her her father, but right here it's, it's. John as the uncle, but really filling in as that paternal figure. And in the early parts of the story, you know, Natasha wants to go join the Teen Titans, right? She uh, doesn't want to go to summer school. Like she got in a D in English and he's like, well, you have to go to summer school. And she's not, not, not having any of that. Uh, he dismantles the armor, right? Her, her steel armor that she has. So he kind of, he's going through all of these things and he's trying to He's trying to instill values in her, right? About responsibility, about accountability and earning what, what you have and using your powers appropriately. He, like he's, the, the lessons are valid and valuable, but what I guess I kind of want to ask you in terms of this fairly tough love approach that he's employing in trying to impart these lessons, we see it has the effect of driving her to this everyman project I was just curious what your take on that was as you was re- as you were reading those interactions in particular. Well, I loved I loved how complex their relationship was and and how complex this issue was for them because both of them have pretty compelling um, viewpoints. I, I understand where John Henry's coming from, and by all intents and purposes, he is uh, he is her father here, even though he's technically her uncle. He is fulfilling the role of a father, but you know his feeling that you know. She, because he's her uncle, she sort of stepped into being an, an armored hero. Um, she had very little to do with, I guess, building the suit. Um, she doesn't have any powers of her own that she sort of, you know, had to go through a trial or a hardship to, to gain. She just sort of walked into it. And so I guess he feels that there's no, there's no guarantee that she's going to then use those powers and the suit responsibly and hold her, as you said, hold herself accountable if she didn't have to go through the trials to, to, to earn it. On the other hand, you know, you look at a lot of the heroes in the DC universe and not all of them sort of earned it in the way that he's suggesting either. And he isn't holding them to, I mean, he's, he's not their father figure. I get it, but I, I see her point as well that, you know, she has to be given the, the leeway to prove herself. And, you know, a group like the Teen Titans, I thought would have been a great place to do that because you've got, it's at that point, it's being led by Beast Boy, who, you know, a long time Titan, who has matured. He's, he's, he comes off as more like a young adult here rather than a kid. Um, and so if anyone's going to hold her accountable, let it be her teammates. But he's, he's very forceful and like, ha- you know, is typical with with parents. If you tell a teenager not to do something, they're going to do it. And so he, you know, he tries to tell her that Lex Luthor is is trouble, and that this seems too good to be true, and she shouldn't mess with it. And it sends her right into Lex Luthor's clutches. Um, so I liked the way this played out. I, I really, I really felt for her, and I felt for him. And you know, I like the. I always like complexity, and 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 complexity in characters, the best kind. 
Yeah, it was it was tough to read, but in a but in a good way, because when when she participates in this every man project and is given powers, you know, initially I'm thinking maybe she's gone undercover, right? Like the idea that she's broken so completely from John Henry, I, I wasn't willing to accept that just yet. But then you see that she's all in and she's ignoring John Henry's texts and 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 it's hard to see that relationship break apart. But then again, at the same time, in terms of how he is delivering this guidance, you you do kind of see how that would turn someone away. To your your point is very well taken, though. It's like, it's like the Teen Titans probably would have been a very good fit. So I don't know. But the other thing too is that uh, to, to your other point, and this because this ties in with how Luther is spinning the Everyman Project, because he says it's like these. The, the, the heroes in this group, they aren't people who were just randomly given powers, right? They were selected for this project as opposed to, like right. you said, so many heroes in the DC universe who it's, it's, you know, happenstance or a product of birth or whatever. It's not that they earned it or were chosen for it. So again, as far as Luther's aim of undermining uh, the public's trust in our established heroes, you know, that was another, another kind of component. So two things with Infinity Inc. that really stood out. So that's the group that, Luther forms with with his with his core uh, every man participants here. Number one, boy, it sounded a lot like the boys. Oh yeah! In fact, yeah. Natasha's code name. I didn't is think Star- about that. Natasha's code name is Starlight. <laughs> right. Right. That is true. And just in terms of you know organizing their media appearances and the way that they're that they're managed and presented to the public, it had real boys vibes. I was thinking that a lot as I was reading this. And, I, and then I was doing the math. I'm like, <laughs> obviously the show is much more recent, but the comic, I feel like, wasn't it around this time? It was, but the, the comic is is very different from the show. It didn't quite do the same things with the the corporate and the media. And the, so I think this, this, now that you're saying it, this read more like the show than the comic. Yes. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Then the other thing is, once again, this idea of filling in gaps. When we get to the Justice Society of America series that launched after Infinite Crisis, Jeff Johns, Dale Eaglesham, the first arc is called the, the, the Next Society or the Next Age or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At that point, the, the, the Justice Society was very much committed to finding and nurturing the next generation of heroes and really expanding their ranks and really living up to their name as a society. And it worked in a vacuum. I I enjoyed that initial arc. But now reading 52 and seeing how our surviving Justice Society members, I mean, the team has essentially disbanded at this point, but we have numerous instances where Alan and Ted and Jay in particular are seeing these new young heroes and seeing how they don't, they don't have the heart, right, of of a star girl, for example, right? Another young hero, but one who has risen to the occasion. And so much so that we get when we get to the World War III aspect of the story here, the remaining Infinity Inc. members whose powers were not switched off by Lex uh, show up. But once they see the battle scene in front of them, they turn tail and run. And you know, sadly, it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not shocked. Right. But to see how that would then prompt what the, the JSA does in that, in their, in their next series, again, it just totally tracked. And it's like, okay, they've had this experience now. And then on top of all of this, the fact that 
Lex had acquired the, <laughs> the, the, the right to use the name Infinity Inc. and the various code names. He had purchased, purchased them from Sylvester Pemberton's estate or so, some you know, convoluted shenanigans on that front. Uh, but you know, that's also rubbing salt in the wound for the surviving members, for Alan in particular, because one of the code names is Jade, and Jade seemingly met her end in Infinite Crisis. So you have a grieving father seeing this young upstart who doesn't know how to use their powers using the name of your, of your fallen daughter it's you know, a lot, a lot going on there. So yeah, I really enjoyed all of that. I did too. I, I also enjoyed the way that it all resolves because uh, Natasha has to see for herself that Luther is just supremely corrupt. And once she sees it, she starts making plans to uh, extricate herself from the Everyman project and, and, um, it's, there's a there is a little bit of a neatness, and I say that not in a, not in a positive way. There's a little bit of a neatness that, like, well, John Henry was right about everything, um, and again, I like the complexity of it, um, where he can he can be right about Lex Luthor, but still be wrong about Natasha and and her ability to be a hero, her potential as a hero. Um, and I don't think that that nuance necessarily came through. It was more like, she, you know, he was just right about everything and she is penitent and she, you know, gets out. And, and you know, the, one of the last things we see is she's getting back to work on the suit because she's going to build. It. And he asks her if she needs help. And she's like, no, I got this because she wants to earn it herself. And And there is something about that that I really like. But I think it does. It does john henry in the position of of just having been right about everything i I don't know that i love that but i did like the storyline overall i thought it was i thought overall it was very very strong that's fair i think yeah i think they probably could have had them meet a little bit more in the middle i think the fact that you know he's setting up steelworks and he's again allowing her to build this suit and operate i think the fact that he's allowing her to do that shows that he has come around on on her and her participation in this. I, it's probably a little, a little light. Right. But, I, but I, I think at least we get enough of that there, but yeah, man, when, like you said, Natasha, she's, she's realized what Lex is up to. And in terms of being able to turn off these powers, he was responsible for the death of one of her friends in the field uh, in an earlier issue. And then of course, for that, the, that rain business and of course, Lex, uh, again, through the use of that shapeshifter, gets the drop on her and, and has, has beaten her. And, you know, she's in, in Lex's clutches and, you know, they get word to John Henry. And it's like he knows it's a trap, right? But he's suiting up and he charges in and rescues her and just beats the crap out of Lex. And yeah. it's, it was great. Like it was just as, yeah. a, as a Steel fan and a, someone who always wants more steel. And I know right now as we're recording this, we're, there's a Steelworks miniseries that's running, which is great. I, I really look forward to that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for a character, you kind of always want to have more time in the spotlight. I love that he really got to have that heroic moment to physically dominate Lex Luthor and save his niece was a, was a very satisfying payoff to all of that. And we didn't mention Lex infected John Henry with this with this metagene and it turned his skin into steel, but it eventually faded. And that was when he learned that these are not necessarily permanent and tied in with other information he was gleaning about Lex's ability to actually actively turn them off. 
So there was that whole thing too. The whole steel skin thing, I was like, eh, that didn't really, that didn't really do much for me, but it's fine. And it obviously was important information that played off later. So Yeah, it just felt like um, a, a tease for a potential change of his status quo, but they sort of walked it back. So, you know, by the time his storyline is over, he's back in his regular steel suit and his skin is, you know, is normal. And, you know, I, I, and I'm, I think I was okay with that. That's a good point. And I wonder if they toyed with that at any, at any juncture, if that was like, oh, they might, it might stick because I know as you're reading it, it does, it does kind of feel like something where even if it's not a 24 seven thing, but he can turn it on and off, right? Something like that. You could say, I'm glad yeah. they didn't go in that direction. I like him being that man of science who, who builds it. Uh, and all of that. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers, and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC Movie Rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, So the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show too. Thank you. So I know we we ultimately don't get this until the end of 52, but I want to talk about it because it, it is important, especially in the context of our Red Skies discussion, and also in terms of my... I guess, faulty memory and, and expectations as well. So we learn at the end of 52 that the multiverse has been restored and there are now 52 parallel Earths. Not an infinite multiverse like we had seen previously, but a different version of that. So again, when I talk about faulty memory, I could have sworn that the return of the multiverse was in Infinite Crisis itself. Like I remembered all those Earths in the sky and then them all consolidating into one Earth. But I thought that we learn at that point that the multiverse is back. And then, of course, in rereading it, that doesn't happen there. Uh, And then in terms of expectations going into 52, I was like, yeah, I think a lot of I don't know what I had no basis for this, but I was expecting far more discussion and exploration of of the 52 and it, again, it's not until the end that you find it, but this is a crucial, crucial piece of information and a major development coming out of Infinite Crisis that we had had a multiverse, it was then consolidated into one, and now after the events of Infinite Crisis where Alexander Luther sought to bring it back and find the perfect Earth, that the multiverse has been reborn. 
I guess I welcome any thoughts you have generally. Specifically, I'd be curious to know your your feelings on, I guess, a, a multiverse generally, but especially a limited one. Because I, I think that's the thing that really sets this apart. It's not mult infinite Earths, right? It's 52 specifically. So I was curious what your reaction was to that. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like a, like a compromise. You know, the original crisis was uh, was designed to clean up the DC universe, which had a multiverse that seemed infinite and it just got too messy because you had so many characters from so many different alternate realities that, that it was getting difficult to keep track of them. And the only way that you could have certain characters interact was if you did your, you know, yearly or semi-yearly, you know, crossovers between earth one and earth two and which I know you've covered. Um, and, and wouldn't it be nice if, you know, the JLA and the JSA could just get together or if Alan Scott and Hal Jordan could just team up and, you know, crisis allowed that to happen. Um, after 20 years, I guess they felt that the fan base had matured. And I don't mean that just in the literal sense and that, you know, people who were very young reading Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1986 were now 20 years older, but just writing styles had evolved and storytelling in general had evolved. And so I think we were ready for more complex stories. And part of that may be an expansion of what you could do with the DC universe, but infinite worlds is probably too many, <laughs> you know, and, and certain writers, Grant Morrison would probably take it, way too far and you'd have to be, you know, reined in. And so this allowed for, I think, writers to do some of those things, but still put a little bit of a limit on it so that you can't just go completely nuts. That's my guess. Um, I have no problem with any one approach. I mean, there are great stories that came from having an infinite multiverse. There are great stories that came from having just 52. There are great stories that came from the 20 years when there was one central DC earth and that's it. So I think a talented writer could do, you know, could tell a really good story in any format. It's just a matter of sort of where do you, you know, where do you want to take your universe? It's, you know, it's sort of um, a macrocosm of, you know, characters dying and then being returned. It's, you know, the fan base sort of turns over so often and, you want to give the illusion of change without really changing anything. So things that once were are restored. Things that are now will be gone, but they'll come back. And it's just sort of that cyclical nature of, of comics. And I think at the time that this was coming out, I, I was starting to recognize those patterns and trends. And so I, it, it ne certainly never bothered me. And, 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 you know, when they go back to one earth, eventually at some point, it won't bother me then either. I'm sure. No, and I, I think compromise is, is a great word because exactly like you said, this gives them different avenues to pursue, but it is contained, right? There is an upper limit on it. So I, I think there's something to be said for that. We, we learn about this, again, in the final issue, Rip Hunter explains to Booster Gold that after that new earth was formed at the end of Infinite Crisis, there was so much residual energy essentially that as an act of self-preservation the earth replicated right and so now you had 52 what was cool was that they were initially identical 
in every way. And then we ultimately have the reveal of, of Mr. Mind, uh, a very grotesque, mutated, advanced version of that little worm, <laughs> Mr. Mind, <laughs> who now seeks to devour the multiverse. And so Booster and Supernova and Rip Hunter are battling Mr. Mind across this multiverse. And each time they do battle and Mr. Mind eats part of the history of the different world that they're on. And even so much as flaps his wings, as we're told, history changes. And so the idea is that through this battle with Mr. Mind across all of these Earths, the other Earths are changing. So now they're no longer the, uh, they're now no longer identical to New Earth. So we have one Earth, Earth 22, I believe, that's essentially the Kingdom Come Earth. We have Earth 5, that's the Shazam family Earth. Uh, Earth 3, the originally good heroes become twisted versions, aka the crime syndicate. So I thought that was a cool touch because it's one of those things, I give them credit. Man, it feels like that feels such a Morrison thing. It's like, <laughs> you don't you don't really need an explanation for it, right? I could think we would very easily buy, just like we did the first time around, that there are these counterparts, these other Earths, and things just unfolded differently there. But I appreciated that they took the time to actually account for how and why that happened, like why these Earths are actually different. So I thought that was neat. Uh, and as far as just a multiverse generally, yeah, I, I don't have any objection to that. Again, I grew up without one, you know, at post-crisis, so it wasn't anything that I was ever clamoring for. Now that I have a better sense of the scope of how DC history has evolved and and uh, and, and changed, you know, I, I think it's, especially coming out of a sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earth, there's something fitting about, okay, the return of the multiverse. I, to be honest, if I have one hangup about all of this, it's that an audience, correct me if you feel differently. I don't know that the like DC ever really fully capitalized on having a multiverse again. I don't, and I also, you know, kind of now to sort of argue against myself, I, well, I don't object to a multiverse. Part of me is like how, how necessary is it? Right. And I know I've talked about this before, like you had a great out with hypertime and even, even before hypertime and even before this 50, the, the 52, it's like, you still had other dimensions and other realities. Like it's not like creators were never telling stories with other versions. So it's like, do you really need it? But in any event, it's cool to have, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that DC ever really did much with it to be, to be honest. I mean, I think the, like the biggest example that comes to mind is in justice society of America. They do that whole thy kingdom come where the kingdom comes, Superman comes to this earth. And they also did a lot in that book with power girl going to earth too. So it, I'm not saying they've done nothing with it, but at the same time, I don't know. Like, do you are, are there stories that come to mind where you're like, oh yeah, like they really, they really made the most of this? Uh, n no, I mean, Thy Kingdom Come was the one that that comes to mind, and I think there was something with the Crime Syndicate too. I want to say, well, Morrison and Quietly did a an Earth. It was called Earth Two, but they did an original graphic novel with essentially the crime. We're actually going to hit that when we do our final Crisis episode. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I know of that. I never read it. I, I remember there being a crime syndicate story. I remember it was drawn by Ron Garney. I can't remember who wrote it. it might have been Chuck Austin. Um, uh, but I remember that. Um, and I think it was after this. So, yeah, I mean, you would think you've got 52 Earths. Um, even if they didn't all show up, I would think somewhere in editorial, 
they've got a list of exactly what exists on each of those 52. And yeah, we probably should have gotten at least one story from each of the 52 Earths. If we didn't, you know, it's it may just be like, how would you even coordinate that? And, uh, you know, I, I guess you got to let different writers do what they're going to do. And if someone doesn't want to pick up on that, then, you know, I guess you don't you don't force them to do it. But yeah, nah, I, I didn't I don't know. It didn't didn't really strike me as problematic in any way. But, you know, now that you bring it up now, of course, I'm going to be thinking about it all night. And, no, you know, I, like, oh, I, I wonder what they could have done. <laughs> well, no. So I bring it up again. I've, I've been kicking this around for a little while. So. When you mentioned about a list, yes, they, there's a map. Uh, Grant Morrison b- built a map, and we're going to talk about it when we do our final crisis episode. Because my guess for that, Mike, is a disciple of Morrison, and I'll, I'll I'll bust his chops about this when we do the episode. But I'll say it now too. I vividly remember him in our comic shop with the map, with the map of the multiverse. Because you know, more. I mean, look to argue against myself again. Morrison did do that multiversity project, which is sitting on my shelf, right. and I hope I'll get to it before we to kind of at least mention in our final crisis episode. But I vividly remember Mike at our old comic shop with the map. And I think I had sort of like kind of checked out of the conversation, but our, you know, fellow guest, Rich Roney, uh, Mike, Mike had him and he was like explaining the whole map of the multiverse <laughs> to poor Rich. And I, I, I don't, I don't know how invested Rich was, but he was, he stood there and he listened to it, but I have that memory of like Mike explaining it. But, um, <laughs> But I guess I, I bring it up too because um you know we'll do Doomsday Clock in an upcoming episode and you know I I loved that whole idea of the metaverse that came out of that and this idea that every time kind of continuity is reshaped whatever came before becomes its own world right that's my memory of the explanation and as an example it was like once the new fifty two was no more in the mainline continuity the fifty two world still exists out there yet. So to me, it's like, well, wow, you can do, hey, you could do a mini series or you could do original graphic novel or you could do an ongoing series set in that world. There were fans of it. I now count myself among them. Yet we sure. never see that. And so I, I don't know. I, I guess I wonder is, are there are creators not necessarily keen to explore that? Does DC feel that there's not an appetite for it? Like, I don't know. It just, it's, it just seems odd to like kind of set all of this up and then not maybe not capitalize on it to the extent that perhaps they could. I, I don't know. I, that's just kind of something that I always think about. But yeah, it, it could also be that there was just a sort of a through line at this point from one event to the next. So rather than sort of letting the aftermath of Infinite Crisis and in Fifty Two breathe a little bit, as you said, we went right into Countdown to Final Crisis. And and that was a yearly, weekly, you know, a year long weekly series as well. And then we had Final Crisis, and then we had Trinity coming out of that, another year long weekly series. And so, you know, going from event to event, and DC's not the only company guilty of it. Marvel started picking up and doing the same thing around the same time. Um, you know, doesn't necessarily allow for as much of that freedom to play and explore because you you're always sort of building up to the next thing and then building out of that thing to the next thing. And, you know, that might, that might be that, the, you know, the storytelling just shifted to these, you know, almost annual mega events. Doesn't just not a lot of time to, to play. 
Perhaps. So let's continue to make our way through 52 here. Yes. So again, I my, my initial setup and, and mentioned intergang. So this whole business about the religion of crime and the crime Bible. So whereas most religions of the world extol virtues, uh, <laughs> like, you know, being kind to your neighbor and, and sacrifice and, and this and that, the religion of crime, right, is the complete opposite, right? So what would typically be considered, uh, you know, flaws or sins are held up as as aspirations in uh you know desirable outcomes and objectives in in this religion of crime and it puts it really puts a different spin on what you typically think of as intergang right where they're you know it's it's organized crime and it's it's you know they're they're weapons dealers and that's still at play here but it's it's with this larger aim of uh again spreading the gospel of of crime I don't know. So what was, what was your, your take on that? Well, I thought it's a, a very smart evolution of organized crime because what you typically find with organized crime is there's always a mole, a traitor, a, you know, somebody who, you know, wants out of the life or just sees another way and, you know, is, it, you know, working with the feds, you know, they're wearing the wire, you know, what all the cliches of sort of uh, that. And so how do you engender unwavering loyalty? in the organization how do you make sure that nobody is going to betray you is you make it uh, you make it a, an organization of faith you make it something where um you know once you're in once you've subscribed it is almost impossible to shake that commitment and religion you know for good and for ill throughout history has absolutely been the thing that has engendered that kind of un unwavering loyalty you do something because you know it, it is divinely inspired and, it, and you can't take the word of the divine and not follow it and so you know to have criminals following this as though you know it is a religion makes a lot of sense and and creates a much more powerful version of intergang certainly much more far-reaching I mean, typically in the past, I think it's it's been an organization that operates primarily in metropolis. You know, um, occasionally, and you know, another city will have a, a branch of intergang, you know, active there. But you know, this seems to be everywhere. Um, and what they're capable of doing is on a level that we really haven't seen before. So, I thought it was a really interesting move forward. What was your take? No, I agree. I think to go from the you know the more mercenary. Uh, tactical, practical aspect of of what intergang has been, and make it more spiritual and ideological. Again, just adds this whole other component, and and does take them now to the global stage. Now, it has been a while since I've reread Final Crisis. I will be rereading it imminently, but I have to imagine there's a strong connection point here between what the religion of crime is preaching and then what Dark Side is unable to enact with anti-life and the subjugation of free will in that story. So, and we also do get from Veronica Kale character from Greg Rucka's run on wonder woman. Who's who ends up uh, with all the mad scientists in this. She does say the final crisis is coming. So already you see seeds are starting to be planted for that. So again, I don't know offhand exactly how that, you know, how we follow that line, but it feels like there has to be some sort of connection point there. But I like the idea of it. Also, I have to say, and I don't mean to to belabor the point about the Black Adam movie, but in that movie, did you see it? I did. So you know how how intergang, right? Intergang is a huge piece of it, but it's uh, they're 
and, and remind me, it, it wasn't religion of crime, but they were in like spaceships and stuff, right? Or for like fighter jets. It was a different version of intergang. Yeah, they had access to to more sort of advanced technology than than I think the intergang were used to. But yeah, it was an intergang that I, I think was intergang by name only in the movie. Really didn't resemble what we know as intergang very much, but that's fine. I mean, you know, it's fine. But I, I have, I have to, I kind of have to give them a little bit of credit here because as I'm watching it, and again, not having this this background with Fifty Two, just their being in conduct and operating and the, the way mm-hmm. that they were, it's like this feels out of place. But now I read this and it's like, oh no, no, like they were trying to establish a relationship with the country through Black Adam and move, you know, move materials through and everything, and were rebuffed and. Of course, that led to uh, their attempts with the mad scientists to bring forth the four horsemen and attack Black Adam. And uh, and that results in the deaths of Osiris and Isis and sets Black Adam on this murderous rampage, to put it mildly. But but anyway, I came, I was like, oh, maybe I was a little hard on that Black Adam movie. There's at least some basis. <laughs> There's at least some basis. And also, Sarah Shahi's character in that movie was Adriana uh Tomas, and then her son here in the comic, it's the brother, but in the movie it was the son, was Amon. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, Black Adam was more faithful to the source material than I, I think people gave it credit for. Yeah, and 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 I think a lot of people were wondering, you know, how they were going to build a movie around a character who is, uh, you know, for most of his history, a, a villain. And we see in 52 that for a lot of the middle of it, he takes quite a heroic turn. I mean, Adriana it was, starts off as a, a sort of regular citizen um, and sort of stands up to him. And rather than dispatching her on the spot, which we sort of expected, he actually listens and, and takes what she says to heart so much so that he imbues her with the power of Isis and takes her as, uh, as his lover and wife. And she helps him be a better person. She shows him a better way than he has previously uh, exhibited and and he embraces it fully. Um, he wants to be better. He wants to be a hero. He wants to atone for the sins of his past, and that only exacerbates the tragedy when he reverts to his villainous ways and and plus some because now he's so vengeful that uh, Isis and Osiris are taken away from him. You know. Sh- Captain Marvel, Billy Batson, has always had a Shazam family. Freddie Freeman and Mary Marvel and Talking uh, Talk Tawny. Like, there's been this Shazam family in DC lore. And for the first time, there was a, a Black Adam family, or they call it Black Marvel family. And there was something really nice about watching it sort of build and build. And it looked almost as though Black Adam was going to emerge from 52 a hero and there were hints that he would join whatever the next incarnation of the JSA or something like that and of course it, it takes a horrible turn um in one of my favorite I'll, I'll tell you one of my favorite moments of all of 52 uh, is that um so Osiris uh, this boy Amon who's who's hardly wounded in in one of the earlier battles and you know looks like he's not going to be able to walk but once given the powers uh, is not just able to walk, but able to do all, you know, most of the things that any Marvel can do. And he has this sentient alligator crocodile pal named Sobek, who 
is just so innocent and loving and, and loyal to Osiris. And he's there for him always. He's just sort of almost child brained. He's very sweet. And you come to realize this was all an act and he was waiting for Osiris to depower. And then he just chomps down on his midsection. It's a, it's either a, a, a splash page or a very large panel. And I just remember being horrified, horrified by how brutal and violent it is. Such a departure from what we'd seen from this character. And so now Osiris is dead and, and you know, Isis is destroyed shortly thereafter. And, and you understand why Black Adam is just so murderously furious. I just, I really loved that arc because it teases so many different things and then just takes them all the way back. It becomes so, so tragic. I found myself really um, sympathizing for him in ways that I don't think I ever have with that character before. I, totally. No, I, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, that's the thing with Black Adam. He's a very interesting but versatile character because we've seen him on various you know at various places on the on the hero to villain spectrum and my beloved you know 90s early 2000s jsa series he was a member for a time before he broke off so yeah. we, you know we've seen him go through a number of different iterations and you know when you understand where he came from and losing his family the way he did and and you know he has a very specific viewpoint it's at odds with what the rest of the heroes in the DC universe and, and ourselves in particular would, would, you know, would likely follow as far as what, what is right and what is the, the appropriate means of dispensing justice. But again, he has a very specific viewpoint and some could argue it's, it's valid, right? I mean, he really makes a point of making examples out of metahuman criminals, one in particular who he literally rips, rips in half uh, in front of the public, which is a very jarring. Terra man from the triangle era. Yes, of Superman, right? It's Terror Man, you know. Who I think we laughed at when we first <laughs> talked about him. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, Lord Retail from Acme Comics, who will be joining us for Dark Crisis, he texted me today about Terror Man, and I, I was like, oh, why is he telling me about this? <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, yeah, no, this makes sense now. There he is. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> right, Terror Man. But uh, so again, it's like you understand where he's coming from, and look. We, we've talked about this, uh, you know, should heroes kill and, and all of this. And, you know, even looking at a character like the Punisher, a very popular character, right? There is something very, you know, that, that people do gravitate towards this idea of, well, we need, we need to put a permanent end to these people who are, who are, you know, operating in this way, right? So again, I, I feel like you, you always see where he's coming from, but yeah, to your point, I mean, it's like, it was, it really was heartbreaking how all of this unfolded and, I liked too this notion at the beginning. So he's really back to his extreme ways at the beginning, but it's from a, a, a specific point of view where in the past he has held to this sort of isolationist strategy, right? Really keeping conduct, you know, to themselves right? and just protecting them and not, not engaging with the outside world. And now he's taking a different approach of like, no, 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 we need to show them the way. Right. And so he's building this coalition with these other countries and the balance of power in the geopolitical sphere is shifting and people are wary. And yeah, and then Adriana enters the picture as initially tribute brought to him, right? But, uh, you know, of course, you know, again, he has his code, right? And, and you know, so he, he does not, uh, you know, he, he does not follow that track. And rather, like you said, when she stands up to him, 
he is receptive, right? And she kind of shows him a new way. And when, like you said, he imbues her with those powers, she has the ability to to control nature. And so, you know, they're the, the, the two of them, and then later with Osiris, when Black Adam shares his powers with him, you know, they're able to bring, you know, water to, to deserts and like do all of these things and, and grow, you know, vegetables. And, uh, and then when it all starts to turn after Sobek takes out Osiris, we find out that Sobek was one of the four horsemen. That was a good reveal because when yes. uh, the mad scientists bring forth the four horsemen, they're like, oh, there's only three. And there's talk of oh, one of them already left. So we don't get a glimpse. And I feel like why this particularly worked was throughout 52, there are numerous people who transform into animals. Uh, again, in particular through this religion of crime, we see, and the character Abbott, right? Who you and I had met mm -hmm. in the, in the Rucka detective run and shows up here, you know, the men are transforming into beasts. So it, you wouldn't necessarily see where this was going. And, and like you said, the fact that Sobek plays into this, again, childlike demeanor, stuttering, right? And really mm -hmm. endearing himself to Osiris and to us when he turns and, and devours him. I mean, it, it was a truly surprising moment and the remaining horsemen attack and, and pestilence in particular, uh, you know, ultimately brings about the, you know, the end of Osiris and it's just like, or Isis, uh, and yet to kind of see everything that he has built and this new path that he's been on just upended, you know, when he, when he goes on, on his rampage, it's like, again, you don't, he essentially wipes out the nation of Bialia. So it's like you, it's not that you, you, you champion that, but at the same time, you, you understand that rage and that utter loss that's driving him. And yeah, it's really, it, I, I was really struck by how compelling that all was. I couldn't agree more. I, I enjoyed those characters way more than I thought. In fact, I, I, I didn't remember that it ended so tragically and I found myself rooting for black Adam to become a hero as they were suggesting. And, you know, so of course I was, you know, horrified and, and, you know, dismayed when he, when he didn't, so, but I, I really liked that storyline a lot. I did not read, but there was a four part world war three miniseries that took place between the pages of issue 50 of 52. <laughs> right. Which, uh, which I didn't. Do, <laughs> I read but, it at the time. I didn't reread it this time. But there was that, and then when we talk about stories that came out of this. So at the end of this story, with respect to Black Adam in particular, this was pretty badass. So Billy Batson uh, is able to. He like calls down the lightning, but catches it. He's got the other magicians helping him. Normally he wouldn't be able to do this, but like he holds on to the lightning and uses it to transform Shazam or Black Adam back into Teth Adam. But then is able to use his new abilities as the wizard right? To change the word. Uh, so right. Ted Adam can't, can't bring himself back uh, to Black Adam. And then that leads to Black Adam, the Dark Age, a Peter Tomasi miniseries where he's trying to get his powers back. I've not read that, but again, there, are, there are a few things coming out of this where I'm like, oh, I, it's like, I know I'm, unless I make an episode about it, I know I'm probably not going to read yeah. it. But in my heart, I'm like, oh, I really, I really would love to. So yeah, the Black Adam, the Black Adam piece of it was really fascinating. And at, at there, there is the juncture there where they do cross paths with Renee Montoya and the question, right? Who they've been investigating uh, these weapons coming into Gotham city and realize intergangs at play part of this religion of crime. They track them to, to conduct. So the Renee Montoya of it all. Now, again, we read that Rucka detective run. Uh, 
you know, I know we're big fans of the Gotham Central series, so we get to see her here really at her lowest. She's left the force. Her former partner, Detective Allen, was killed. He's since become the specter, and she's just drinking herself into oblivion and having these you know, meaningless one-night stands, and her girlfriend had left her, and she's, again, at a very low point, and that's when the question uh, hires her to stake out this warehouse, and they go on this another ultimately heartbreaking journey when the question yes. succumbs to lung cancer and Renee ultimately becomes the new question by the end of it. But yeah, they have, they're, they're on, on quite a journey together and they really, you really see that, that bond forged between them. Uh, yeah. I was just curious what, what your, what your reaction was to that storyline, especially given, you know, your affinity for the character. This to nobody's surprise, was my favorite storyline in all of 52. Um, I I thought Rucka's work with Renee so brilliant. It, there, there are... It, what Rucka does really well here is he knows when to give her dialogue and he knows when to keep her quiet. And there's so much that is... So much of the story of her is told just through the images. Like you said, just, walk, just seeing her with a bottle of alcohol in her hand whether she's swigging out of it or not, um, seeing her constantly lighting up a cigarette, which of course, you know, given that the question is dying of lung cancer, seems like, you know, uh, an odd choice, um, you know, to watch her, uh, you know, either through internal narration or, or outward dialogue to ask questions, right? I mean, sometimes it gets a little heavy handed with the imagery I don't care because I, I love it. You know, when a candle is snuffed out and the smoke sort of forms the shape of a question mark or, you know, she's dragging Vic Sage's body through the snow up to Nanda Parbat and the, the path sort of looks like a question mark. Like it's, it's everywhere. And, and it's not a coincidence and I don't care because I just love it. I mean, there, you know, the hints are that she's going to become the next question. Um, but it's, it, it's, such beautiful character work as she's really, you know, the central question of her story is who am I? And she just, she is so lost, does not know who she is, doesn't know who she's going to be or who she wants to be. And it's because she now is thrust into this adventure um, that she ultimately finds herself. And one of my biggest disappointments with the DC universe in the present is that she isn't more active as the question. I loved her as the question. I thought it was such a brilliant choice to, to put her in that role. I thought it was so fitting for everywhere her character has, has gone. I, I absolutely, absolutely love everything about this storyline. How about you? Same, same. Hey, you know, it's funny. I've, I guess I've had, I've come around a bit on w one aspect. So as I said, you know, big, big fan of Rucka and his work on detective comics loved Gotham central. I know this has come up a, a number of times. One of my all time favorite series. It's, for, it's forever staring at me on the shelf, beckoning me for a reread. <laughs> one of the things that at the time, I guess I didn't love was the notion again again i didn't read 52 but of renee becoming the question and uh christmas allen becoming the specter and i think it was mostly just rooted in this idea of 
Rucka's stories with them were so real world, so grounded. Gotham Central was a police procedural set in Gotham. And so this idea of now catapulting them into this larger DC universe, and with the Spectre in particular on the cosmic realm, it just felt like, oh man, these characters are straying from the versions that I like. But I've come around a, because I really enjoyed 52, and you got to see that journey, and you got to see how how this partnership with Sage really brought her back to life and gave her a purpose. And, you know, your heart breaks for her throughout because she just lost one partner, had been disowned by her family because she's gay. And it becomes clear, right, that she's going to lose Vic as well. He's going to succumb to this disease. And it was really, and, you know, Rucka talked about this, about wanting to depict the dementia right, as the cancer makes its way to the brain. And, uh, you know, as you really see Vic falling apart, it's, it's for a, such a cerebral character to now lose that. It was, it was really tough, and she's losing another partner. I mean, the last-ditch ep- effort, like you said, to bring him back to Nanda Parbat and, and potentially save him there, and she's trying to find the way, and she's asking everyone for help, and she's dragging him up this hill uh, in the snow and barely, you know, just makes it to the to outside the gates, and, and that's the end of it. And then later on, you know, we haven't really mentioned, uh, you know, Kate Kane as Batwoman, but she's like you mm-hmm. see, you did say earlier, she's reintroduced here, and you learn that Renee and Kate had had this relationship in the past, and the religion of crime is targeting her, the twice named the daughter of Cain, that whole business. Uh, they were trying <laughs> right. to sacrifice her to the dark gods, all, all of that. But uh, when when it seems like Kate gets stabbed at one point, and it seems like she's dying, and Renee's like, "Not again!" And so you see this poor this poor woman go through all of these instances of losing or or seemingly about to lose a partner. But the larger thing, kind of from the fan perspective, that I really, like, I really got it, was in an ideal world, Gotham Central would still be running today. <laughs> and we'd be hundreds of epi- <laughs> issues in, and I would love it. But that wasn't the case, yep. right? So in a world where those two characters in particular, Renee and Chris, could have very easily just fallen into obscurity, right? Instead, they were given a new purpose and a new role within the DC universe. And and I really appreciate that. And even if, again, especially through the various reboots that have happened since, if that's not even... I don't, to be honest, I don't even know who the Spectre is at this point in time in DC continuity. Couldn't, couldn't tell you. I Audi- don't know. Audience, please let me know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in any event, for at least, at least for a time, there was, there was a place for them. And so these new roles gave them that place. And if not for that, again, just like a lot of other characters in Gotham Central, because that was a fully populated squad room of characters. And most of them just kind of, you know, kind of, kind of fell away. So I am now very much team specter and question uh and and again i I, you know while while it won't be an official part of our final crisis episode i do want to give that revelations mini another look because that's the two of them teaming up again so i i want to we'll revisit that but yeah this was it was really strong and and again it's i know i know we keep saying it but having these very different writers and getting the just the crazy over-the-top mad scientists and outer space action, but then also getting this noir detective story yeah. <laughs> journey of self-discovery. It just, it, it uh, again, you got all, you know what? And I'm glad we're talking about this. Just like when we were talking about those countdown miniseries, 
right? This, mm-hmm. the, the lead up to Infinite Crisis and how you had all of the different corners of the DC universe represented. You have that here as well in the in the 52 series. And and so again, some might speak to you more than others, but still you're you're getting that all of those different flavors. And uh yeah, I, I really I, I give them a lot of credit for how they how they work together and how they balanced all of this. Yeah, and the, and the miraculous thing is that, you know, we we talked about with the four different miniseries, you know, when you're reading one of them, you're getting one flavor, right? You read Ranth Anagar War, you're getting big giant space epic and only big giant space epic. When you put them all together, right? The Gestalt gives you, you know, all the different flavors. 52 is all the flavors mixed together. It's in the same container and it shouldn't work. And yet it does. I've heard, I've heard the same thing um, spoken about with, with regard to how sort of the MCU uh, unfolded, you know, once you start getting to infinity war and, and Endgame to see, you know, Ant-Man and Wakanda and the Guardians and the Avengers, you know, all these sort of different flavors of Marvel movies coming together in one co- and the Guardian sections feel like Guardian sections and, you know, Wakanda feels like Wakanda and yet they can all exist in the same film uh, works really well and it shouldn't, but it does. I feel like that's kind of what's what's happening here. Um, so to get those bits of noir uh, amidst some, you know, big bombastic superhero storytelling, or as you said, you know, space, space faring adventures, they get super weird. Uh, you know, the things on Oolong Island, it gets super weird. It's no coincidence. It's the Grant Morrison <laughs> bits that are super weird. Um, but uh, so the one last thing I'll say about the Renee Montoya thing was uh, one of the bits of commentary is reading is that, you know, as the original question succumbs more and more to the cancer, he becomes, uh, you know, ridden with, riddled with dementia and, and, and is not is speaking but not making any sense and he's speaking these weird phrases that seem completely like non sequiturs and greg Recca was saying that they're all bits of dialogue taken from the original run of question comics and brought in so anybody who read that I, you know i think it was what denny o'neill who mm-hmm. originally wrote that run right dennis cowan i believe was drawing it if I'm not mistaken. So if you go back and read those, you should be able to find all those little bits of dialogue in the original series. And he certainly didn't have to pay that close attention to the ramblings of a dying man. But the fact that he did, I just give him all the props in the world for it. I think that's absolutely amazing. And, and what incredible fan service that most fans wouldn't even recognize. No, well, yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, yeah, I've not read those those uh, older stories, but I appreciate that. I. At least there was that nod to them. Yeah, and and again, so this story introduces reintroduces Kate Kane right as as Batwoman, so brought back into into modern continuity. And you know, Dan DiDio talked about this in in one of those uh, you know pieces after the issue, and I had forgotten, I guess, what a big deal it was in the press. When, when, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I was instantly reminded of it and it's like, well, of course it would be, uh, just as when John Kent recently was, uh, was announced as being bisexual and that got a lot of press. Right. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I had forgotten, you know, kind of what it, what a big deal it was at the time to have a member of the Bat family, Batwoman in particular, be, be a lesbian. And of course, again, Rucka would go on to write her in detective comics. Then she would continue to get the series in the new 52 and in rebirth. And of course the television show, which like I said, I only watched the, did you watch that? 
Um, I watched the first season. I liked it well enough. And then once Ruby Rose left, uh, I, I, I didn't have much of an interest in, in continuing. Um, gotcha. Yeah. I, I know only made it one more season. So. Yeah. I only watched, only watched it up until crisis, but that, that held true for a mm-hmm. lot of the Arrowverse shows. I won't, I won't lie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I dig the character and this is, you know, mostly kind of setting the table for what Rucka would then do with her, uh, later in the <laughs> series. But, uh, you know, cool. And I liked, again, the past with, uh, with Renee, you know, was a, was a, was a good touch. So yeah, we've made it through, you know, a, a number of the stories so far. You know, I don't, I mean, we, we can, if you want, I, I, I would kind of leave the booster stuff and supernova because that's one thing, if we can avoid spoiling it and people want to go and, and read it on their own, I think that, I think that would be kind of cool, but we could certainly mm-hmm. circle back to that. But, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times our trio out in space, uh, stranded after the events of infinite crisis and trying to get home. And there's a bounty on their head because they saw something that they shouldn't see right there when the hands were sifting through the, the, the you know, the, the, the rift in, in the, the space-time continuum, I guess the idea that they got a glimpse of of the new multiverse. And what we do later find is that Red Tornado, his computer mind was able to map the multiverse. But anyway, so they're trying to get home. They eventually run into Lobo, who's taken up with this uh, <laughs> <laughs> very odd fish-based religion, and he's taken a vow of nonviolence and... Meanwhile, there's this uh, this being the, the Lady Sticks who has this uh, armada, and they're tearing across the galaxy and taking over. Um, I didn't I didn't mind this stuff so much. I, I guess the Buddy, in particular, Animal Man, trying to make it home to his family and getting those occasional glimpses to Ellen and the kids as they're still holding on to hope, right? That he's still out there, but it's seeming less and less likely. That I found the most resonant with this. But well, I was curious, what did you enjoy this this aspect of the story? I enjoyed it well enough, but as you said before, you know, when parts of this are not your favorite, you're dealing with it for a few pages at a time, and so you know, you, you go into it and you go, all right, let's just see what's going on with them, and then you're on to something that you probably like a little bit better. Um, I like. I, I thought it was an interesting group of characters they chose to be stranded out. Adam Strange, Animal Man, and Starfire. Um, Adam Strange is blind at the end. Uh, you know, when this starts, is he, he can't see, uh, so he can't be the hero that he is. And he also is you know, essentially trying to make it home to, you know, to his wife and daughter. And Animal Man, who has uh, you know a, f- a full family unit. And because he's earthbound like you, I, I, I sort of found that to be the most compelling of the three. Um, and Starfire seems like an odd choice to, to group with them because she really doesn't seem so urgent to make it home or anywhere else. She's just kind of okay being, at, you know, in, you know, the, one of the first times we see her is she's sort of bathing nude in a, in a, lake on some foreign planet and she sort of emerges and her, you know, she's looking all sexy in her hair, you know, as, as a Tamaranian, she has different views on sexuality than, than we repressed earthers do. Um, and, and she's just sort of making the most of the experience and enjoying being out there while at the same time, understanding that she should probably help the other two make it home. So it's just an interesting 
uh, pairing. Again, I, I liked the quieter moments where two or three of them would just sort of watch a s- sunset and, and talk about their hopes and their dreams and their fears. And so it, yeah, it didn't bother me. I mean, the, you know, the, the Lobo thing, you know, that the vow of nonviolence isn't going to last <laughs> and sure enough, it doesn't, you know, once he's pushed far enough, he, you know, although, the, although it's funny because his final rampage is, takes place completely off panel. We just see him sort of smirking as though he's, you know, he's been given himself permission to unload on the hot high dolphin, whatever the, whatever the head of this religion is. So you don't, you don't actually see it. So Lobo is restored, you know, to his typical self by the end as are, as are essentially all the other three characters. And it was, it was entertaining enough. I didn't bristle against it, but yeah, it wasn't my favorite. I think they said in in those interviews that they liked the idea of placing this, you know, the, 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 the sexy and voluptuous starfire uh, and, you know, the, the free starfire, right. Uh, mm-hmm. In between these two very committed, you know, uh, married two married men, yeah. you know? so I, I guess that was part of it. I, I will say you're saying you like the quieter, more character driven moments. I did like when Adam strange was opening up to starfire, I believe, and talking about how, he's used to long distance relationships, right? Like he's right. this idea that he's kind of always coming and going from Ran, but he also talked about how on Ran, like he's this, he's this manly hero, right? But then right. he talks about how he and Alana had tried bringing her to earth. And here he's one among this pantheon of, of gods, right? And they were living in an apartment and it just, you know, he, he didn't feel like he was standing out the way he does there. And he made up some excuse and they went back. And I thought that was, that was an interesting bit of, of character insight. So, so I enjoyed that. Again, we've talked about a lot of this already, the mad scientists who are, who are brought to, to Oolong Island under the direction of, of Chang Su, if I'm saying that correctly, I guess in previous stories, Egg Fu was the, was the character. Yes. Maybe? And for Hope you know obvious reasons they they <laughs> dispatched with that name because it's you know pretty pretty racist for a, a you know a character who's drawn essentially as a giant yellow egg. Yes, indeed. So again, they're working on what we ultimately find out is is to bring forth the the, the four horsemen and and we'll, I you know what I will say what one of the things that I liked the most about this whole this whole track was the unlikely friendship between T O Morrow. And Will Magnus, right? On opposite sides of the law, but Morrow had been a teacher of his and had believed in him and pointed him in the right direction with the development of this artificial intelligence, which just as a side note, all this talk of AI in this, I'm like, man, uh-huh. that's what we're living through. So that was interesting, interesting <laughs> connection point there. But yeah, I mean, this was just like zany and wild and putting all of these characters together again, very, very Morrison, uh, and, you know, this whole idea that, you know, Will Magnus, he's like stockpiling these tin cans and lead shielding. And <laughs> he ordered 300 thermometers for the mercury, right? So he's <laughs> he's rebuilding these miniature versions of of his metal men. So, I, you know, like that was cool. I enjoyed that. And, and again, seeing Veronica Kale, a character from Rucka's first Wonder Woman run. And I do specify because, man, I tried... I really tried with his rebirth run and I just did not connect with it, but his wow, original okay. wonder woman run is, is still remains a favorite. So it was cool to see, to see her character here. Yeah. This was another one that, that 
was again entertaining enough, but wasn't my favorite. Um, I I I don't know why, but I got a kick out of the running gag where because Mercury is the first metal, <laughs> first of the metal men uh, that Magnus is able to reconstruct, and most of what he says is to remind Will Magnus that Mercury is the only element that is liquid at room temperature. And he just, did I tell, did I mention that? And I just found that so charming and adorable that it, it helped to endear me to characters who I don't normally gravitate toward. Um, yeah. I, I don't have too much to say about that storyline. It, it, it's, it's part of the fabric of it. I think it has a place if it weren't there, I don't know that I'd miss it, but it's, you know, it's perfectly fine. Right on. Uh, I, I believe the, the you know, the, the last major character and storyline is Ralph Dibney. And I think a lot of that was Mark Wade. Yeah. Uh, you know, definitely got that sense. Again, I think, you know, there was certainly a lot of spillover as, and as they talked about, but uh, again, a lot of the, we've identified, I think a lot of the Morris and stuff, again, all of the, the question material really seems to be Rucka I'm assuming when we see the JSA characters and we're talking about Infinity Inc., that's Jeff Johns. Uh, We do know that Mark Wade wrote that Clark and Perry scene that we talked about earlier. And again, he really seems like he has an affinity for uh, Elongated Man. It was interesting. We've been following Ralph's story, right, from from Identity Crisis. And and then, you know, to see him at the start of this, his house has been demolished in the wake of Infinite Crisis. And throughout his run here, you you really get to see his deductive mind, that detective prowess that we're told about, but you really get to see it unfold here. And they really play him like a badass. I mean, I think, yes, there's also this deep crippling grief, right? That that's there and coloring everything, but still he, you know, he never comes off as a pushover. And in fact, for most of the story, he's not even drinking the, the, the you know, the, what's it called? Gingold, Gingold, no, Gingold. Yeah, yeah, something, uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it gives him the. Yeah, it's spelled like gin gold, but I think I think they call it right. gin gold. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, for most of the story, he's not even you know drinking, right? So he's just a guy, and uh, yeah. So I mean, in terms of the characterization, it was interesting. You had mentioned earlier this cult of Connor, right? So there's this now religious group that's forming around the fallen Superboy, and this idea that he can be resurrected through this ancient Kryptonian ritual and the, the S symbol upside down allegedly represents resurrection and that's painted on Sue's uh, tombstone. Right. And that gets Ralph's attention. And like you said earlier, we find out that Cassie wonder girl has gotten caught up in this. Uh, And this was new to me. I mean, I, I was reading teen Titans at the time and I'm sure they referenced this in the one year later story, but Again, I didn't have the context for it, but yeah, she I, I felt I felt for her character that she had gone kind of that far afield. I did too, especially because there were several misdirects where you're you, I think a rational reader's initial take on the cult of Connor is, you know, this is a scam. Right. right? This is this is this has to be a scam. And Wonder Girl is falling for it because she's so desperate. Um, you know, to, to bring him back. And and she's convinced that this can actually do it, which when you look at, again, when you look at, the, you know, mainstream superhero comic storytelling, 
It's not so far-fetched. And they even reference it in story to say, like, how many heroes have died and come back? And now, all of a sudden, we're the crazy ones for believing that Connor and Sue could be resurrected? Like, let's not kid ourselves, you know, into believing that, that it only applies to a Superman or a Green Lantern or a Flash. If it can be done once, it can be done again. And so you know it has to be a scam. And then you start thinking, like, maybe this is possible. And they go they go pretty far um, into convincing us, the readers, through particularly through Ralph, where it seems as if they've taken Sue's clothing. It looks like that purple outfit that she was wearing uh, in early identity crisis and, and created this sort of wicker, uh, you know, mannequin of her and dressed it up like Sue and taken the wedding rings as totems to draw the power. And, and it looks as though it's happening. The, the, the mannequin starts animating uh, and and moving and then of course it's 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 all destroyed and that that unbelievably tragic um, sort of callback to identity crisis where Ralph is holding this now sort of limbless mannequin that has gone up in flames um, and then of course later we see him wearing a wedding ring made of that wicker um, you know he's still holding on to it so they really kind of pull and push on the reader's heartstrings with this. To the point where you don't know what to believe, who's right, who's wrong, um, and and so I think it was a really, it was a really great job. This is a, next to the Renee Montoya question storyline. This one is uh, is my favorite. It was, and it's funny how you, know, you see the parallels. We talked about how the religion of crime puts a whole different spin on intergang. Similarly, here it's like if Cassie were trying to get a hold of the Kryptonian rejuvenation re- rejuvenation matrix that that Superman mm-hmm. had gone in, we probably wouldn't have batted an eye, but you put this whole <laughs> cloak of religion over it and it changes things. But at the same time, like you were saying, and and I love how this plays out in the story that it, it's easy. The story definitely makes you skeptical of what's happening. We're, we're also skeptical just of, of this idea generally, but when you place it in the context of the DC universe, it's like, yeah, people come back all the time. So you you know you do a a you wonder well maybe there is a way maybe this maybe this is going differently than we think and b you understand how characters especially in the throes of grief could get caught up in this one of my absolute favorite bits was after Ralph has a better understanding of what they're trying to do and the fact that before they try bringing back Connor they're going to try to bring back Sue as a trial run and he's like right. well why didn't you just tell me that like let's do it. And again, it's, you know, trying to get a read on Ralph throughout all of this was interesting because it really kind of seemed to be a moving target. And so at the end of that issue, you're like, oh, okay, like he's on board and you you wouldn't begrudge him that, right? You would understand why he would. But then you find out when they're performing the ceremony, they're passing around blood kryptonite that he's called in Hal Jordan, who not only died and came back, but became the specter. Um, yep. Oliver Queen, who died and came back, Metamorpho, who died and came back, and Zariel, an angel, right? So to, to call them in undercover to sort of give their take on all of this, I thought that was a great touch and was also realistic, right? Because you have people who actually have experience and have a frame of reference for a resurrection. So to bring them in made total sense. And yeah, everything goes awry. And like you said, you have that scene of him you know, cradling that wicker uh, version of Sue. 
And when we catch up with him again, he's called in to investigate the uh, this death at the House of Mystery, and he comes into possession of what appears to be Dr. Fate's helmet, right? And this sets him on this whole journey through the magical realms of the DCU to bring her back. And at this point, you know, it's he seems committed to it, and he's going to the ends of the earth and beyond. And as a husband, it's like, I would do the same. Like, if there were the means available, again, there's no deal I wouldn't make. There's nothing I wouldn't do. I think the most interesting stop along the way was when he uh, encounters the Spectre and Eclipso. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's sort of established in the New 52 is this idea that magic always comes with a price, that in previous stories that was kind of dealt with in a trivial way, but moving forward, this is the idea. Like, if you're using magic, there's a price to pay. And so in encountering the Spectre, it's like he has to punish Jean Loring, AKA Eclipso, right? For her role in Sue's death. And, and so, you know, he brings her back to the night of the murder and makes her sane, right? Cause, and we talked about this when we covered identity crisis, it was, you know, this whole bit of like, Jean did it cause she's nuts. It's like, okay, not the best, but you know, here, like he makes her sane and makes her relive the moment. And they knock into that, that vase while they're waiting. And that causes the noise. And Wade talked about that in the, uh, in the trade, right? That in the original identity crisis, Jean, Sue hears something, Right. And we never know, like, okay, what was it that caused that noise? It's not Gene because Gene is, you know, atom sized. So, yeah, that closed that little bit of a loop that I didn't even know was there, but that Wade had, <laughs> had caught. <laughs> and ultimately, Ralph isn't able to, to carry through with that. So he decides he's going to find another way. Now, spoiler alert what we ultimately find out is that it's not Dr. Fate. It's not the actual helmet of fate. It's actually Felix Faust who's trying to trade Ralph's soul to the demon Neuron. Right. So we'll get to all of that. Ralph gets there. Ralph figures it all out. Again, ever the detective. But one thing that I bumped up against, but now maybe we can account for it. When they meet up with the Spectre, he if I'm not mistaken, the Spectre talks about being hostless at the moment. But in Infinite Crisis, Detective Allen became the new host of the Spectre. Are we to believe, though, that that wasn't actually the Spectre, that maybe that was a ruse perpetrated by Faust? Because I can't imagine that they would get that detail wrong, since obviously Rucka was so attached to Chris Allen and John's wrote the issue where he becomes the Spectre. Unless there's some timing aspect that I'm missing here. Yeah, I'm, tr- I'm trying to... Rec- and I don't, and I don't remember that part of uh, Infinite Crisis well enough to say for sure. But no, I mean, yeah, it's I like, can't he imagine is, that- like he is infinite. He is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Maybe when they encounter them in space, maybe maybe they've traveled through time or something. And at that point in time, yeah. you know, he he hadn't gotten to the new host yet. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, either way, I I, I appreciate that you know this juxtaposition of taking a man of of empiricism and putting him in a world of mysticism um, because those two things are going to bump up against each other. It is, it is odd to see that character in that environment and to watch him embrace it the way that he does. But again, you know, he's, he is also so desperate to, you know, to be reunited with Sue um, and, you know, spoilers, he is, but not quite in the way that he originally intended. Um, I, I, what was the other thing I was going to say about, uh, Ralph? Um, oh, there's, there's a very neat sort of visual attention given to 
the the storyline, particularly with the cult of Connor, but but moving forward too, there are these visual um, symbols of identification for those of us who understand how sort of cults work in the worst ways. So like the members of the cult of Connor are wearing these red hooded robes and they're all dressed the same. And just seeing a room filled with those people should make us uneasy, right? That is, that's a hallmark of, of a cult where everyone sort of buys into some kind of craziness, you know, the passing around of what you, you know, the blood kryptonite, you know, whether it's the Kool-Aid or the whatever, you know, the passing around of the sacramental something also like these visual cues that aren't directly spoken about in, you know, the text of the story, I think really help to flesh out the idea that this is, this is potentially scary territory where people we know and love are being roped into some kind of scheme and then to sort of watch it unfold. And, and again, watch him go to places that he as a character really hasn't been. I mean, this is, this is a Ralph we don't get to see. Ralph was a comedic character, you know, in his, in his, in most of his early JLA um, appearances, you know, he's funny, he's funny looking and he, you know, with his stretching ability and he's just sort of funny. He's, he's, you know, he's never really been on a JLA team that takes itself super seriously. Um, and now we see this side of him and it's an interesting side, you know, starting in identity crisis, which brought him back to prominence and, and ending here. And I, I just really liked seeing this version of, of Ralph, which is why I hold that, that aspect of 52 in such high regard. Yeah, it was, it was really good. And, and again, when you get to the, to the resolution where he's figured out that quote unquote fate is Faust and is ultimately able to trap neuron and Faust and he does meet his end, but is reunited with Sue and they become these ghost detectives yeah. It was, it was, I enjoyed that a lot. Going back to identity crisis, which obviously we spent a lot of time on, I guess I'm of two minds and I, I don't, I don't know where I ultimately land. So on the one hand, as we talked about, even though Ralph and Sue factor heavily, obviously into, into identity crisis, the story is ultimately not about them. And, and even for Ralph, right? Like Sue obviously is killed in the first issue, but even Ralph only has so much to do as the rest of the story unfolds. So that's why spending all of this time here, I feel like kind of helps make up for that a little bit, even though the identity crisis had other ground to cover, but still I like that aspect. Now on the flip, on the other side, one of the things I really did enjoy about identity crisis and I give credit to Meltzer is that he got Ralph, when we do see him at the end of identity crisis, he obviously will never be over Sue, but he has achieved some measure of peace, if you want to call it that. And he's talking to her as he's going to sleep and you feel mm. like he's going to be okay as, as okay as someone could be who's gone through that. And then when you pick up with him here, he's, he's in such a dark place <clears throat> and Again, as far as how the grieving process works, I have no doubt that that's a natural, you know, the ebbs and flows of all of this. So it's not like I have a huge problem with it, but there is that part of me that's like, oh, that was such a satisfying final scene with Ralph talking to his wife at the end of Identity Crisis. And we had to kind of sacrifice that to take him on this journey here. That's that. So when I say kind of I, I, I liked it, but I did have a little bit of a reservation on that front. 
So my read on the last scene of Identity mm-hmm. Crisis, I think, may be a little bit different than yours. I don't see his talking to the empty bed where Sue would have been lying as him being at peace. I see it as him plunging into sort of delusion where he's pretending she's there. Oh, and okay. He's and he's saying goodnight to her as though she's like I think I think he says like I love you too. So he's like imagining that she said I love you. And I, I always read it as like oh god Ralph is off the deep end oh, now. Oh that's you know it's so I think it's oh, I so I think it's open to interpretation. I Sure. Genuinely I don't think that was the intention but i definitely see how it could be read that way and ultimately i can't say what the intention was but it's so fascinating yeah. to hear you say that because no i i always took it as again just kind of feeling connected to her in some way not that he was like literally imagining that she was talking to him or that he was at like you know imagining that he was hearing her voice or anything like that but boy if you read it that way then this really tracks <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like it's like the 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 movie for you ends on a major chord, and for me, it ends on a minor chord. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it's so funny you say that because for I, I, Identity Crisis, for as 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 dark as it was, like we talked about, I actually felt like that was a somewhat hopeful, a relatively hopeful finish mm. uh, in in terms of that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's up, up for debate. That's fast. No, I'm glad we talked about it because that's interesting. Yeah, that definitely yeah. colors things like wildly differently. <laughs> so listen we've been going for uh, two hours and change here we've covered a lot like i said at the top we weren't here to go beat by beat through all of this there are some things like the booster gold of it all that i kind of purposely held back on because i think that's especially Mm -hmm. when you get into supernova i think that's a fun a fun reveal to watch unfold so even as much as we've talked about things you know we avoided spoiling all of it is there anything else that you want to say about this or any aspect we didn't talk about that you wanted to? Cause this was a huge reading assignment and I appreciate you taking the time and I don't want you to feel like I, I wanted to talk about this. So we didn't get to it. So if there's anything, please, I'm, I'm game. No, I, I, I've crossed off all the things on my list. Um, I'll, I'll just reiterate. I, I, I enjoyed rereading this way more than I expected to. Um, and as I said to you when we were texting about this, I I was reading it with one part of my brain on how's Anthony going to like this? Is Anthony going to enjoy this? What's he going to have to say about this when we talk about it? And I really was sort of 50-50. I could, see, I could see a road where we went down, which is the road we went down, where you really enjoyed it. And I saw just as valid a road where you just thought this was a giant mess and hated the whole thing. So. I'm glad that it was that 50 and not the other 50, but I just, I, I, I I was, I continued to be impressed by how well the creative team planned and executed going all the way back to the four lead up mini series to infinite crisis, infinite crisis itself. And now, and now 52. And so I'm now as uh, super excited to keep listening to the rest of this event, to see how the threads sort of pick up on each other. I will give a lot of the credit because we haven't mentioned them yet to the two editors who coordinated this. The first half or so was Stephen Wacker. Um, and then he, I believe left the company at that point and Michael Seglane took over. And so what they had to do and their assistant editors had to do to coordinate four writers writing completely different storylines 
for a couple of pages at a time for Keith Giffen to have broken down the whole thing and to have a, an army of artists penciling and inking over those breakdowns is nothing short of Herculean. This is an amazing series, an amazing creative feat of comics. And I'm so glad that it exists. And I'm so appreciative that you gave me the opportunity to reread it and talk about it with you. No, well said. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to read and have this conversation. And I was looking forward to comparing notes with you. And yeah, I, I, it's, I regret that I didn't experience this as it was first coming out, but I'm glad that I ultimately came around. I didn't know if I would ever do an episode on this. I didn't know if this, that this would necessarily be part of this event. And I'm, I'm so glad that we did. And, and like you were saying to now see how this fits into the lead up to infinite crisis, infinite crisis itself, seeing the seeds planted for final crisis. You know, this, this era at DC was, was a special one. And again, the, the, as much as I enjoyed the story itself, like we keep saying, the way that they put this together, uh, you know, you really can't say enough about it because it's it's it could have so easily, you know, it could have so easily not come together or simply not come out or not come out on time, right? So yeah, it, it really is. Hopefully, we haven't oversold it too much to people. <laughs> people will read it, like, what are these guys <laughs> talking about? No, nah, but it's, it was really good and and definitely worth a read and. I, again, and I don't, I don't say this as a backhanded compliment either, but it's like, you know, we're so used to now watching all of these streaming shows, right? Uh, I'm not even going to compare movies and shows because the games change so much. And mm -hmm. we talk about comics, they're come out on this periodical basis, it's very much like a TV show, but it's like, you know, we have these streaming shows and they're shorter, uh, you know, shorter, uh, episode counts and shorter number of seasons and very high quality and high production value and whatever your favorite happens to be. Think of that. That's not necessarily what this is, but what I will say is, you know, I've recently, I don't watch a ton of network television anymore, to be perfectly honest, but over the past couple of years, I got back into watching Law & Order SVU, and I've been watching Organized Crime as well, and there are these procedurals, and, you, you know, they have their certain formula that they're following, and, you know, it's just a, a little bit of a different animal, like when we compare it to those, to those streaming shows, but still plenty enjoyable and you do have to appreciate the grind of knocking out 22 episodes, you know, a, a season. And so again, that's, I, I kept equating it to the world of television and, and how, yeah, it, it's a, it's a little bit of a different beast, but, but, you know, but no less valuable. And as much as we've talked about, yeah, there have been these other weekly series. There haven't been a ton of them, you know, and, and this one, I, I, I think it's fair to say did it best or among the very best. Yeah, I read the other two, and, and they don't come close to this. Yeah, there you go. All right, folks, that was 52. Scott, thank you again. I really appreciate you coming on. Audience, always appreciate you listening, truly, uh, especially to this event. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it, we're, it's a lot of material that we're covering. I know these have been big episodes, but like I say in that in that preamble, it's like the history of of D.C., you know, you can really look at it through all of these events that have shaped it. And so it's something that I've really wanted to tackle for a long time and I'm glad we're doing it. And I'm curious now, because as we move into the next phase of this event, the second half, we're getting into territory now that either is newer to me or, or totally new or maybe not necessarily as near and dear. So Final Crisis is one that I've come around on a lot, but still might be wrestling with it a little bit when we get there. 
We're going to do the metal events, which are totally new to me, but we are also weaving in Scott Snyder's Justice League run. And I know he did a lot with Lex, so we'll, we'll have fun with that. Uh, Doomsday Clock, which uh, that one I am very fond of and I'm excited to revisit. Oh, I, Flashpoint, which, mm-hmm. you know, the first time I read that, man, it was hard to divorce that experience from what I knew was coming with the new 52. And I think I kind of took it out on Flashpoint. So I'm excited to mm. revisit it for what it is. And then uh, Dark Crisis, which I'll be reading completely uh, for the first time. So uh, it would be very interesting. I'm excited to continue diving into all this. I'm excited to listen. Thank you. All right. So like I said, folks, next week, we're going to have a brief interlude. We're going to talk about my adventures with Superman and then Red Skies will continue the week after. Thank you all. And of course, as always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.